Hi everyone, it's Alyssa. For this week's episode of 52 Women, we're going to bring you the audio from our March 17th panel discussion on women's history and the Equal Rights Amendment. Before we get into that though, we have a woman of the week for you. It's Alice Paul, a suffragist who wrote the original ERA text. Alice was born in New Jersey in 1885 to a Quaker family. Quakers were and are progressive when it came to women's rights and rights for minorities. Alice's mom, Tacy, was a suffragist who passed along her views and activism to her daughter by taking her to suffrage meetings. Alice was a very well-educated woman. She studied social work, had a bachelor's in biology, a master's in sociology, a PhD in economics for which she wrote her dissertation on the legal position of women in Pennsylvania, as well as multiple graduate degrees. She worked and studied for a time in England, and during that time, she met and joined up with the militant suffragettes who would go on to win the vote for women in England. Upon returning home, Alice moved to D.C., where she led the D.C. chapter of the National American Women's Suffrage Association. That organization's goal was to get women's suffrage on a state-by-state -state level, as opposed to a federal amendment granting women the right to vote. Alice didn't like that tactic, so she left the group and formed the National Women's Party. The National Women's Party was more focused on militant efforts such as protesting, picketing, and hunger strikes, which she learned from her time with the British suffragettes. Alice organized the famous 1913 Suffrage March in D.C., and she also organized 18 months of picketing in front of the White House starting in 1917, for which she and other picketers were arrested and thrown in jail for seven months for obstructing traffic. During her time in prison, she organized hunger strikes during which the suffragists were force-fed. The prison tried to say she was insane, but she was examined by a psychiatrist who said she was sane, but willing to die for her cause. In 1918, after the suffragists' treatment in prison was made known to the public, and because of the public response, President Wilson finally declared his support for women's suffrage. The 19th Amendment, giving women the right to vote, was passed in Congress and ratified by 36 states in 1920. Three years later, Alice and the National Women's Party introduced the Equal Rights Amendment. The Equal Rights Amendment, or ERA, was originally called the Lucretia Mott Amendment, which Alice named after another prominent American suffragist. The ERA originally stated, quote, men and women shall have equal rights throughout the United States and every place subject to its jurisdiction. In the 1970s, the language of Section 1 of the ERA was changed to, quote, equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. The ERA was passed by both houses of Congress in 1972 and it was then sent to the states for ratification. Alice died in 1977, knowing 35 of 38 needed states ratified the amendment. Nevada became the 36th state to ratify just last year. The Equal Rights Amendment has still not been ratified by the United States of America, and it is not part of our Constitution. Okay, so thanks for listening, everyone. Enjoy the audio from our panel event, which will go over more of the history of the Equal Rights Amendment and give a little bit more info on Alice Paul. And next week, Jenny Rose and I will be back with a regular episode of 52 Women. Bye! All right, hi, everyone. I'm Alyssa Blattman. I'm the president of Montgomery County Now. 
Um, happy Women's History Month. Thank you very much for uh, coming out for Women's History Month to join us for our panel on Women's History and Equal Rights Amendments, or the ERA, um, if you're not familiar with the acronym. We're going to release the audio as part of our podcast. Our chapter produces a weekly podcast called 52 Women, which you can subscribe to on iTunes or listen to on our website, um, which is MC for Montgomery County, MD for Maryland, now for National Organization for Women, mcmdnow.org. If you'd like to live tweet the event, you can do that. We'll be tweeting as our chapter, um, but you can tweet along with us and tag our chapters at mcmdnow, um, just like our website. And we're on Facebook and Instagram, the same handle, if you want to follow us on there. And if you are live tweeting the panel, you can use the hashtag ERANow um, to follow along with what's going on. I have some information. For those of you who don't know, I also work at National Now. Um, and my colleagues in the National Action Campaign prepared a little brief to let you all know what National Now is doing towards the ERA. Um, and I'm just going to read verbatim from what they wrote. So a year after the launch of the National Action Campaign at National Now, the National Action Team continues forward with the primary goal of mobilizing Now members to take action. The campaign encompasses Now's set of action priorities and includes five campaigns, one of which is equal, excuse me, ratify the Equal Rights Amendment. From Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg's statement on constitutional equality to the introduction of the ERA in the Virginia Legislative Assembly, the conversation around the ERA endures. The action agenda for this campaign continues to be, one, pursuing a three-state, now two-state strategy, Two, pursuing a start-over strategy to ratify the ERA. Three, advocating for an inclusive and intersectional ERA interpretation that includes equitable access to all aspects of reproductive health care. Four, uplifting grassroots activism and state-level ERAs. When addressing the ERA, the National Action Team has found that the most effective way to use our resources and time is utilized by engaging new audiences and promoting chapter advocacy. Um, so our panelists are going to touch on a lot of what I just read to explain further. Um, my colleagues have prepared three handouts, which you can come up and grab toward the end of the panel discussion, um, one of which is a how-to guide for visions for equality submissions. Um, it's something National Now does to promote equality in general in the ERA. Um, another one is an intersectional approach to the ERA. The info brief explores the enduring potential of the ERA and why an inclusive interpretation is so important. And the last one is a core piece of NOW's ERA agenda, Take Action, Target States. So you can read more about what National is doing via the handouts, um, which you can pick up toward the end of the, uh, end of the panel discussion. Um, and further, they said, the ERA is a critical part of the National Action Campaign's future strategy. As the National Action Campaign team continues to be responsive to pressing action items, we see the ERA as a tool to create lasting change for women's rights. Moving forward, the National Action Team wants to, one, leverage movement moments when the ERA is part of the national conversation, react quickly to developments with state-specific emails and action-oriented content, promote and seek submissions for the Visions for Equality microsite I just mentioned, Promote materials that support the two slash three state strategy and start over federal legislation. And finally, emphasize an intersectional ERA interpretation. We're gonna move on to our panelists now. We have an empty seat at the end. Delegate Janelle Wilkins 
is going to be joining us for the panel. She represents District 20 in Maryland. Um, the Maryland legislature was called into session today and she's currently on her way from Annapolis to the panel. So she'll be coming in a little bit late. We have Bettina Hager, who is the DC director of the ERA Coalition and Fund for Women's Equality. Uh, Andrea Miller, executive director and IT director for People Demanding Action. Eileen Davis, co-founder of womenmatter.org. So we're gonna get to it right now and I'm gonna ask each of the panelists to introduce themselves briefly. Um, and let them know how they're connect. Let our audience know how they're connected to the ERA, and then we'll get in, be getting more in depth um, with some questions for them. So we can start with you, Bettina. Okay. Uh, I'm Bettina Hager. I'm the DC Director and CEO of the ERA Coalition Fund for Women's Equality, and we are an organization that um, was founded about four years ago to focus on building a nationwide constituency for the Equal Rights Amendment. I started working on the Equal Rights Amendment as the co-chair of the National Council of Women's Organization ERA Task Force probably six or seven years ago. And one of the things that I realized when I first got involved was that um, you know, there were a lot of people that care about the ERA, but there are a lot of people who don't know about the ERA. And having it be such, a, such an important constitutional change, you need to have almost everyone in the country saying ERA. And at that point, we didn't. And we're still working towards that. Um, so our goal is to have national awareness campaigns and to um, get over the 80% uh, figure where 80% of people think that it already exists. So, <laughs> so if 80% of people think it already exists, 80% of people aren't going to be working on it because they don't know mm -hmm. to work on it. So that's kind of what we're doing. We create educational materials. We're creating national awareness campaigns and branding campaigns. And we work with our amazing lead organizations and member organizations, of which now is the lead organization, Women Matter, as well. So um, we'll get you. <laughs> so, okay. Uh, oh, me. Um, I'm the founder of People Demanding Action, and we're 501c4. So one of the main jobs that we do is we write legislation and we advocate to build sponsors, co-sponsors, and then once we have the bill, we whip for support. So back in 2011, when I got Reinvolved with the Equal Rights Amendment. Um, I had been very involved as a teenager because it was a very, very, very important issue for my mother. I was a teenager back in the 60s, so yeah, that's like a long, long time ago. So <laughs> I've been working on the Equal Rights Amendment for a very, very, very long time. And uh, thank you, thank you, people applauding that I'm old. Yeah, right. <laughs> But again, still here. So it became very important for me when I began leading an organization and I realized when we looked at economic and social justice, we weren't pushing forward on the pay inequity that existed for women. So I began to take that on and we built up national awareness calls where every month we 
talk to people about the Equal Rights Amendment. We let people know what ratified versus unratified meant. We made sure people understood the legislation. And to this day, even though I'm not with the original organization anymore, people will at least twice a year all over the country deliver a letter to their federal senators and their federal representatives, either asking them to become co-sponsors or thanking them for. When I originally started working on three-state, um, Rob Andrews of New Jersey was carrying the bill, and that bill rarely saw more than 50 co-sponsors. When we were able in 2012, when Jackie Spear officially took the bill, we were concerned because we had worked so hard to build it up to 104. When we opened, we opened at 110. So that was thrilling. And that was also the same year that we finally had a Senate co-sponsor. So I've been working the Hill. Now I'm exclusively working on the state side. Other organizations are working federal. I am now exclusively working state side. Who would that sponsor be? Hmm? Well, that sponsor would be Maryland's own <laughs> Senator Ben Cardin. And thank you very much, Holly. Now, one of the things I always tell people is whenever you see people that are elected who have the ability to introduce a bill or co-sponsor a bill, ask them to do so. It's really lovely to say, hi, take my picture with you. Have your ask ready. Holly had her ask ready. My name is Eileen Davis, and I grew up in New Jersey, and I've been involved in social advocacy all of my life. We don't have time to go through it all. But um, what I found, what I've been doing has been working, um, I'm a healthcare background. I've been working in healthcare issues and, and poverty issues and community issues. And, and I moved to five different states, and I ended up in Virginia in the 90s. And... I knew back in New Jersey, I, you know, I, you know, I was very involved as a college student. Uh, Bella Abzug was my absolute hero, my mentor, my, you know, my, she's just my, well, somebody once told me I was the Bella Abzug of Richmond and I just about burst into tears because I took that as the nicest thing anyone ever said to me, minus the hat. But anyway, um, but I, um, I came to Virginia and I was down here doing social justice, you know, and, 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 and Andrea and I have been almost got arrested multiple times together because we do a lot of social justice work. And, and it occurred to me that I realized that I was in a key unratified state. And thus, the Equal Rights Amendment, uh, I realized, well, I, and in my naivete, I'm like, oh, they don't know this. I'm just going to tell them, and it's just going to get done. This is just a little thing that no one's paying attention. I'm going to bring this to their attention. We're going to pass it. We're going to have a press release. Everybody's going to have... You know, this big, fabulous press release, we're going to all eat cake, it's going to be done. Boom. Didn't happen. So, and that was in 2010, I think we started. And in that time, I, we've got to remember now, we're in Virginia, okay? This is Virginia. And we have our own little um, group, you know, you got to remember NRA is headquartered in Virginia, Heritage Foundation is headquartered in Virginia, Family Foundation is headquartered in Virginia. We are fighting all of these horrible 
super uber conservative retro organizations. But somehow, we have been able to pass the Equal Rights Amendment in the Senate with bipartisan support five times. Five times. Goes over to the House and they stonewall it, they won't let it out of committee. This year was particularly egregious because, first of all, they lied, unfortunately. Um, cited a document that did not exist. It was really a whole, but I won't go into that. Um, but we, we ended up having the votes in both the Senate and in the, in the House. We had the votes for passage. So what they did was they wouldn't let it out of either committee. Even though we have the votes, which gets us into the territory of at what point are you obstructing? You know, at what point are you obstructing? We had bipartisan support in both chambers. We also, uh, I've coined the phrase and I come to understand it's absolutely true. If you can't change, well, I didn't coin, if you can't change your minds, change your seats, but I coined women are represented when women represent. And we worked our behinds off in Virginia with all of the seats that were done because we recognized it. And in the 13 seats that flipped, 11 of them were women. Uh, yes, yes, thank you, yes. Uh, I'm also an Emerge graduate, so shout out to Emerge, dedicated to getting women elected to office. And every one of those 11 women were Emerge graduates. So, and so we worked very heartily with the, heavily with them as an overlap. But what we, um, what we have, what I've always been saying all along is that the road to ratification in a conservative state like Virginia is through the Republican Party. You've got to engage Republicans or you're just never going to get it done. And so the first thing that we've had to do is we've had to go back and we've had to educate to what Bettina said. Uh, the numbers vary, but 72% of people think the Equal Rights Amendment is already in the Constitution. And most Republican women think that it's already in the Constitution. Um, a few super conservatives are like, well, I don't want equality. I'm like, well, you know, it's like the right to vote. You have the right to vote. You don't have to vote if you don't want to. But let's all have equality, and then you can stay as unequal as you want. <laughs> no one's asking you to exercise your equality. But, you know, for the rest of us, you know, we just kind of like to, you know, we'd like to have that. But anyway, so what, but what I have found is if you're under 40, that 72% goes up. You ask a 25-year-old, and they look at me like I'm some crazy old lady who's stuck in the 60s. I'm like, no, it isn't done. And then if you can convince them that you're not nuts, you have an instant advocate, instant advocate. So I, I can't stress enough that education is the key to moving this movement. And the Me Too movement and the Time's Up movement helped us enormously this year in terms of getting over a thousand women to show up at the General Assembly and raise hell. They were hiding under their desks. They were terrified. I was asked to speak at the Deltas, um, the Delta Sorority, which is the largest college sorority of historically black colleges. I was, and Andrea and I both spoke, and they all put on these purple equal rights amendment pins and their red dresses and their red hats, and they stormed through the General Assembly, and those, those old white grandpas just about had a stroke. So You should send it on pictures of that. Yeah, yeah, it was that beautiful. Would be awesome. So this is the kind of stuff we have to do. We have to be intersectional. Mm -hmm. We have to be inclusive in age. We have to include our men. Men make great surrogates. Um, the interesting thing is when we had our Senate hearing, it's, it's funny, we had a lot of different testimony given, but then somebody in another state put together a YouTube, and you can look it up, they put together a YouTube of this very contentious uh, Senate hearing where the entire place, the police literally stopped letting people in because the room was too crowded. It was against the fire code. We had so many people there. 
And the women were mad because they didn't want to vote. And everybody started singing, we shall overcome. It was a big deal. The Capitol Police were shaken. They didn't know what to do. Should we arrest them? Last time we did this in Virginia, we were laughed at on all the shows. We don't know what to do. It was just great. But they put together a YouTube video. And when they put together the YouTube video, 50% of it was dedicated to the one man that spoke. The one man, which is great, because we need our male surrogates. And the man who spoke was terrific. It was my husband. But anyway, <laughs> and, I, and I told him to. I said, we need a male to speak. But so we need, we need to understand that we need our male surrogates. We need our men. Because those, those men in that panel, they listened to him. And he, and he, say, he wrote what I, he said what I gave him to say. And when he got in line, but it came out of his mouth. So they listened. So understand, we, you know, we have to work the room we're in. We have to work the room we have. We need our men. My husband is six foot six. He's a big manly man. You know, he's you know he just he fits all the stereotypes that these idiots want to see. He's he they'll they'll look at him every time I go to a rally. Andrea knows I always bring him, and he wears this big T-shirt that says "A man of quality is not threatened by equality." He's my walking billboard. You know, and when some when some snarky men's right activist says, "Oh, you're one of those feminists that hates men," I'm like. My husband of 42 years is going to be really surprised to hear that. You know, so you just kind of have to diffuse it. But anyway, they posted his words, his words. And when he was online going up, I, I leaned over to him and I said, I need you to go all Patrick Henry on their ass. And he started laughing. He goes, okay. And he did. And he did. So, but my point is, you need to understand, we need to have a very diverse movement optically. It's all about the optic. They have to see it. They can't just see a couple of old ladies. They can't, they can't, they have to see young, they have to see diversity, they have to see color, they have to see gender, they have to see all racial groups, they have to see that, they have to know that the public at all wants this, that's what they need. And I had one guy say to me, well where are the young women, I don't see any young women, it's only you old ladies that want this done. This year we had hundreds of young ladies and I walked up to him and I said, they all took off work today and hired babysitters, and here they are. So I'm going to stop now, but my point is, is that when you're dealing in an unratified state that is south of the Mason-Dixon line, you have, to, you have to work the room you're in, and that is you've got to appeal to down the middle of the road. Now, what we have for next year is we have two male Republicans signing up to sponsor this bill next year. They want to take lead because they can't stomp on it if it's patroned by male conservative men. And I've, we've, that's the biggest thing we've been able to do is make sure that these men understand that this is something that they need. And they're, all, and they're both young. They're younger members who are like, I can't believe this isn't done, but yeah, you're right, it should be. So targeting the younger conservative men is the way to get it done, because then the older conservative men are like, oh, dude. And they're like, no, Grandpa. And they've actually <laughs> said to us, you know, these old guys, we can't change their minds, but I'll, I'll talk to them. I can't talk to them, but they can. So that's how they really, you really just have to strategize and be very disciplined in your strategy if you're working in a state like Virginia. I'm done for now. All right, super. So we're going to get into the questions now. And our first question, or before okay. we get into the questions, I just want to let everyone know our panelists brought a bunch of materials for you all to take and look at. Um, we're going to give those out at the end of the discussion. So if you like what they have to say, please come on up. Can, and I, tell them what it is? Some... Can I tell them what it is quickly? Sure. Okay. What I have here is a women's wage equality dollar. It's Alice Paul on the front, and it has the writing of the Equal Rights Amendment on the back and the breakdown by racial disparity in terms of what an African-American woman makes, a Latina woman makes, 
Uh, the front has a Caucasian woman because at this point in time, white women constitute the largest percentage of women in the country. That's likely to change in the next 50 years, but right now, that's the way by the numbers. It's got our website on it, which is an online library. Then I also have a, so everybody gets one of these. And then I also have an ERA yes pin for anybody who doesn't have one. These are purple. Um, we we rebranded them purple. Uh, anybody want to know why? Who wants to take a guess why? International women. Huh? International women. Uh, actually, no. It's more for inclusion. Purple's the color of inclusion. This is everybody. So we you know we took the the straight green one and we went purple, and that's been very well received in Virginia. And the other thing that I would say before we start, stop saying ERA. You've got to say Equal Rights Amendment. You have to, particularly when you're trying to teach. I have this one gentleman who works, at, he's a Capitol Police officer at the General Assembly. Nice old guy, he loves me, and he teases me every time I come in. And every time he sees me, he always says to me, how's your earned run average? And, yeah, 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 and he's it's right. Funny. He's, he's reminding me that if you don't know what ERA is, you don't know what the heck I'm talking about. So we have to start saying Equal Rights Amendment. And think about it, it's one of those few things that's named what it is. Equal Rights Amendment. Why wouldn't we throw out the brand every time we get every chance we get? So stop saying ERA, because you're missing a teachable opportunity. It takes a little discipline, but stop saying ERA, because it sounds dated, it sounds 70s, and you also are missing a chance to brand what it is you're talking about. I'm done. Sorry. All right. On that note, Bettina, can you give us a brief overview of the Equal Rights Amendment? Yes including when it was first introduced, what the main text of the Equal Rights Amendment says, the deadline imposed on it by Congress, oh my. and why, <laughs> I, can read it, I can read it multiple times, and why it's important for it to be ratified. Okay, well first of all, um, after the panel I have sheets of information which basically answer all of those questions, um, including have the language of, there's actually three different language, because. Um, because Senator Menendez and Congressman Maloney have different language introduced in the House and the Senate. Um, so brief overview of the Equal Rights Amendment, which has been around for like 100 years, so it's hard to be super brief. <laughs> but the Equal Rights Amendment was first introduced in 1923 by Alice Paul, the 75th anniversary of the Seneca Falls Convention. She felt that it was great to have the 19th Amendment. It was a huge historic moment. But if you read about Alice Paul, she's like, she doesn't rest at all, and she was like, okay, that's great, now I'm gonna move on to the next thing, which is full equality. She felt that women needed their own version of the 14th Amendment, um, which in a, a way we still do, because the 14th Amendment has sex equality as a lower standard of scrutiny than uh, race, religion, and national origin. That took a while to go through, and, and she was a Republican, um, and it actually took a while to get the Democrats on board. There was some worry from the labor movements. Would it remove the special protections for women in employment? And the Equal Rights uh, Amendment activists said, as long as we have special protections, we're going to be treated differently. We want to be equal. So eventually, um, the civil rights movement kind of led to the women's movement. Um, and in the 60s, 70s, there became a really large push for the Equal Rights Amendment. It was being blocked by Emanuel Seller and the judiciary. Um, so what they decided to do was a discharge petition. So it was kind of similar to Virginia, except I don't know if Virginia has the option for a discharge petition. 
We do, um, it's harder to, yeah. to get. Yeah. yeah. So the judici- so person holding the judiciary is the person who allows it to get to a vote. And the person in there was a huge labor proponent and said, I'm not going to let it go. So, um, so you have to have 218 members of Congress sign for it to go to the vote without the permission of the judiciary. They did that, and it was voted for overwhelmingly. So then the next session, he realized, I can't stop it, let it go through, um, was passed overwhelmingly in the House and Senate, went to the states. But the ratification deadline was put on when it was passed in the preamble that said it had to be ratified within seven years of its passage. And in the very beginning, the states kind of were almost fighting to be the first. So um, Hawaii got to be the first because of the difference in time zones. (laughs) 42 minutes after it ratified. So, and Mazie Hirono, so speaking of Senator Cardin, he helped, to be honest, he sent me the email, or his office sent me the email the day before his tweet storm, and then he told me, can you get everyone to do it? And they did, thank you mm-hmm. now, and, and everyone. Um, Mazie Hirono just tweeted this week on Ruth Bader Ginsburg's uh, birthday, you know, all proud about how Hawaii was the first one who voted on the ERA, because they had the advantage of the time zone. Um, and there were lots of states who came right after that, and then about at, at the 35th state, um, you know, around 1974, 1975, I would say, um, the states started um, getting backlash from the opposition, which came in the form of the Christian right, or the face of it. Um, most people who've been involved know it was more business and um, insurance interests who realized that equality would cost them a lot of money, but they couldn't say that, so they kind of hired, not hired, but they got someone to present it as a family rights issue. Mm-hmm. Um, so then the, once it, the deadline was about to expire, um, Liz Holtzman sponsored a bill to extend the deadline by three and a half years. They got that through. However, those three and a half years didn't amount to any other states ratifying. And since then, um, the Equal Rights Amendment has, in one form or another, been introduced in every single congressional session. It hasn't had a hearing or a vote since 1982. Um, So, and there are activists, as you see here, who are very strongly pushing it, but are pushing it with the, without, with the, the issue being that 80% of people think that it already exists, so it's very difficult as an activist to get a lot of movement with the vast majority of people that you're talking to. You have to be the educator. Because, um, you know, one person at a time, although it's exponential growth, once you tell someone, then they tell another person, but it takes a lot of work. So um, there are two versions of the Equal Rights Amendment. There um, is what's considered the start over, which is uh, introduced in the House by Congresswoman Carolyn Maloney. She has 142 co-sponsors. And the interesting um, part of that language is that she actually added a sentence, which is kind of similar to the original language Alice Paul introduced, saying, women shall have equal rights in the United States in every place subject to its jurisdiction. After that, it has the traditional language of equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. 
Um, in the Senate, the related bill is Senator Menendez's, and it is just the original language. And then there's the three-state strategy slash two-state strategy because last year Nevada became the 36 states to ratify, um, which is just a whole different interesting case study. Um, so, and that's introduced by Jackie Spear in the House, and she has 163 co-sponsors on her bill, and Senator Cardin in the Senate, who has 34 co-sponsors. And to um, say some positive things about your senator, he and his office are amazing. I've worked with them since they were the um, came on as the co-sponsors even before the coalition existed. Um, hats off to Bill Van Horn, who is his chief counsel, who pushes this so hard more than most other congressional offices. And they're doing all these tweet storms. And the number of co-sponsors they have, 34, is amazing because they just push it so much. Um, what was the rest of the question? Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. Why is it important, why is it important for it to be ratified? <laughs> oh, OK. <laughs> why is it important for it to be ratified? Well, the Equal Rights Amendment, it's important for it to be ratified because um, the Constitution is the founding, um, is our, it's like, oh. well, they call it basically um, the law of the land. So I, don't, so I recently been helping someone study for the citizenship exam, and the first and second question on there is about the Constitution, because we teach the people who want to become U.S. citizens that the Constitution is the most important legal document. Mm -hmm. And we reinforce that as the first and second question that we ask them to study for in their citizenship. And the way that they frame it is, what is the US Constitution? And they say it's the supreme law of the land. Yep. And, the, and every single piece of legislation is based off of the Constitution, and it has to be held up to the Constitution if ever brought to the Supreme Court. So right now, the Constitution is missing a sex equality provision, uh, sec prohibition on sex equality. And until that is changed, any legislation that is currently protecting um, or prohibiting discrimination on the basis of sex can be reversed. It can be taken up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court can very rationally say, this is a great law, and they've done it with the Violence Against Women Act, one provision. Um, this is a great law under what you're saying this person has the right to win their case but there's no constitutional basis of this law, so we're gonna throw out the law, and we're gonna throw out the case, and we're gonna throw out this sort of protection for anyone from here on out. So it's, you know, the Constitution, there are only 27 amendments at this point because it's meant to be basically our kind of guideline to what we as a country think should be our foundational beliefs, and um, sex equality should be one of those. That's why it's important for it to be ratified. Yes, yes. I'll get to one sec. I just want to welcome Janelle Wilkins, delegate. Uh, Janelle Wilkins, District 20. Um, thank you so much for coming straight from Annapolis. I know you're busy in session, so thank you so much. No problem. Oh, what I wanted to say, you were talking about the answering the constitutional question. This is a huge issue in Virginia. And I, before we go on to other things, I want to just tack on to what she said about the Constitution. The thing about the Constitution, and I was saying briefly, we had the, the uh, Family Foundation in Virginia write a opinion piece last week about um, anti-equal rights amendment saying, well, 
apparently equal rights amendment advocates think men can get pregnant. And it devolved from there. It was a ridiculous article. <laughs> but when I wrote the, uh, the op opposition opinion that was also printed, I, I, I basically went into the whole idea of, you know, do I have to explain to a conservative group that the sacrosanct laws of the Constitution, the sacrosanct protections of the constitutional affords? I mean, this is the, that's their favorite C word, isn't it? So, but when, you know, but then when you talk about the, you know, they don't want to talk about the Constitution as being, oh, we already have enough. Well, really, the, the Constitution's now not necessary. I must have missed that memo. But what I have found was. Um, aside from the lack of information surrounding the Equal Rights Amendment in the general public, is also a lack of information about the history of why the Equal Rights Amendment is needed. And over history, over time, there have been over 200 bills that have been brought before the Supreme Court that have either been refused to be taken because there's no sex equality clause, or they've taken it and it's failed. And you alluded to the Violence Against Women Act, but the one that has been the most provocative for me with regards to dealing with a Republican-based a Republican majority uh, General Assembly has been the Lilly Ledbetter Act. The Lilly Ledbetter Act is a consolation prize. All of those intermediate congressional laws, in my mind, are consolation prizes. Very few people know, and certainly the General Assembly did not know until I brought this to their attention, that Lilly Ledbetter started out by going to the Supreme Court with her petition. And she went all the way up through the states and won, 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 won. She was in a state that actually had a state-level equal rights amendment. She won. It was against Goodyear. She won, 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 but Goodyear kept appealing. And then it went to the Supreme Court, and then she was denied. And she was denied, and Scalia wrote the descending, he wrote the opinion, turning her away. And the other four justices that voted with him are still on the court. So we've got four people on the court that we know support this position today, even as we all sit here. So when people don't tell you that it doesn't, that the 14th Amendment is enough, I have proof that it's not. And Scalia was asked in the Hastings School of Law in 2010 by a very cheeky law student, uh, how could you turn Lily Ledbetter's original position? And that's why we have the Lily Ledbetter Act, because we were all so angry when that happened that they gave us the, the, the Lily Ledbetter Act sort of as the consolation prize. And, and, and while that's great and it's a good start, it actually created more problems than it solved because it created the illusion to the general public that the problem has been solved, and it really hasn't been. It's, an inner, it's, a, it's, a, it's a weak fix to a strong problem. It's very, it does very, it doesn't And do it's useless. It, it it doesn't take, I mean, Lily Ledbetter herself, it took her nine years. And most yeah. of Lily Ledbetter cases take about nine years to grind through. And at the end of the day, I think there's like a 19% success rate. So it's really an, it's a, it's a consolation prize that just muddies the issue. But when Scalia was asked, he said, and I quote, the question is not whether the Constitution requires discrimination based on sex. The question is whether it prohibits it. It doesn't. He goes on to say, nobody ever voted for that, and you yeah. can't just reinterpret it in, which means he's talking about the 14th Amendment. Because I've had Republicans say to me, at least Republican men, well, we have the 14th Amendment. No, no, no. I actually had Tom Garrett in the Virginia General Assembly when he was a senator, who's now a congressman, in committee when we brought that up to him. He looked at me and he said, Scalia's wrong. I just started laughing. What do you do with that? Oh, Scalia's wrong. Oh, really? Uh, okay. I'm sure he'll want to know that you think he's wrong. He's on the Supreme Court, and you're over here. But anyway, so he said, uh, you can't just reinterpret it in. Nobody ever voted for that, which means they didn't vote for them. Actually, if you go back and look at the history of the 14th Amendment, the, the abolitionists who put in the 14th Amendment included women. 
They had to pull women out because they, it was a bridge too far and they weren't going to do it. So it wasn't that we're kind of sort of supposed to think that women included. Women were purposely pulled out because they weren't going to take the 14th Amendment if women were included. Mm -hmm. It was not. It was a, a no-go. They had to throw women under the bus to make the 14th Amendment happen. So you can't just reinterpret it in. Then he goes on to say, if indeed society has come to a different view, there is a process for that. Seek an amendment. I tell every Republican that gives me pushback that. I've, had, I've given them this, the Ginsburg quote, and they say, oh, Ginsburg's a radical. Oh, okay, well, then let me tell you about Scalia. That's what you say when you're talking to somebody who just thinks you're just quoting some radical feminist whack job, and I've had people say that. I adore Ruth Bader Ginsburg, but I'm just trying to let you get inside the head of what the opposition is saying. So the point of the matter is those are the kinds of stories that we have to bring when we're truly trying to get to the middle. I'm done. All right, our next question is for Andrea. Can you please go over the history of the Equal Rights Amendment when it comes to women of color? Has the Equal Rights Amendment text itself, as well as the efforts to get it ratified, always been inclusive and intersectional? Um, there's a very, very rocky history between African-American women, women of color, and the Equal Rights Amendment. A lot of that really reflects the history of the country itself. America has always had a race problem. We were born with a race problem, and we have never fixed it. We still have it today. So when it came down to the Equal Rights Amendment, where yes, clearly, it would have a major impact on women of all races, there has been a very big disconnect in terms of support and inclusion in groups that were working very hard toward ratification of the Equal Rights Amendment. I can remember in Chicago back in the 1960s that my mother and I, sitting in all those living rooms in suburban Illinois, we were the only women of color who were there. And since we were frequently the only people of color Anywhere we went, it was kind of like, well, okay, but it seems to be nice and it seems to be welcoming. One of the problems that probably showed it the most was when you look at the march, the great women's march, where you had all the white women in front and you had all the black women at the back mm -hmm. of the march. But again, it was a a reflection of their times, but B, it was a failure to say, we are working to right a wrong. And if women's rights are civil rights, the moment you embrace that word, civil rights, then we are suddenly talking all humanity and we must become colorblind. Mm -hmm. So there was a tremendous missed opportunity there. So I was watching the room early on. I was delighted to see our men. I was thrilled to see other ladies of color come in and join us, thrilled to see women under the age of 40. Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> I'm always thrilled to see women under the age of 40 because, you know, I'm Medicare age here, so I'm going, wow, we need younger women to continue the movement. So that's one of the reasons why I stepped back from federal and I'm only working on state. So anyway, Shirley Chisholm had a really great quote, and this is from August 10th, 1970, before they were able to pass and ratify the original Equal Rights Amendment. Mr. Speaker, House Joint Resolution 264 before us today which provides for equality under the law for both men and women represents one of the most clear-cut opportunities we are likely to have to declare our faith in the principles that shaped our Constitution. It provides a legal basis for attack on the most subtle, most pervasive, and most institutionalized form of prejudice that exists. Discrimination against women solely on the basis of sex is so widespread that it seems to many persons normal, natural, and right. And so the image that I frequently use whenever I talk about the Equal Rights Amendment, um, I actually have this image designed shows, um, again, it's the line I got from Eileen, 40% of wage disparities due directly to sex discrimination. And then we show there is also racial discrimination on top of the sexual discrimination. Now, normally, everybody quotes the 78 cents because, again, white women are the numeric predominant in U.S. society. Asian women are 87 cents to the dollar. They actually make more. All right? African-American women, we are next at 64 cents. Native American women at 60 cents. And our Latina sisters are bringing up the rear at between 53 and 55 cents to a man's dollar. And that is still as true today as it was back in 2012 when I commissioned this graphic. As a matter of fact, in the time between the introduction and the beginning of the ratification process for the Equal Rights Amendment, white women have gone from 77 cents to a man's dollar to a whopping 78. We got a raise. <laughs> so it's moving very, very slowly. So we need to pick this up and get it done and make it move. Just uh, building what, on, on what Andrea just said, um, to put it into terms that maybe you can see clear, more clearly um, than just a few cents on the dollar, 53 cents for Latina women um, meant that last year their equal pay day was on November 2nd which means that Latina women had to work all of 2016 plus until November 2nd, 2017 to earn what white men on average earned in just 2016. That's almost an entire full extra year just to earn the same amount of money. So definitely um, that needs to be worked on and improved for sure. And then one last comment. Um, I'm a federal contractor, so um, my wages are somewhat 
protected, but when I'm not doing my federal contractor thing, it was kind of an interesting thing for me to realize. I do IT, I do Homeland Security IT, and I realized that it is totally illegal for any of the government agencies that I work with to discriminate against me on the basis of my race. However, they can discriminate against me all day long on the basis of my sex. Yeah, um, so, get, picking off on what she said about uh, about the disparity, I I like I like to use metaphors because they're easy, um, and and I I take the intersectionality of race and gender as you know you've got a five pound weight on one leg for your gender and you have a five pound weight on your other leg because of your race, so you know those of us who are white we've got you know we got one leg that we're dragging, if you have any other intersectionality of any other a minority of status of race, either African American, Native American, Latina, you've got the five pound weight on the other leg. And and both have to be addressed. They both have to be addressed. And and one of the things that I've tried to do, successfully but yet unsuccessfully, more successfully with older African American women. The younger African American women still are just a lot like younger white women. They don't really see the whole issue as being holistic enough to affect them is the idea of we have to multitask. We have to multitask. You know, you, you know if, you're in, if you're involved with um, you know, rights of minority communities, you know, this needs to be included. Because poverty in, in, in families, if it starts with the woman having a depressed pay, all of those other issues are going to overlap. Like there was a great article in the, um, proposed last night, which is a little bit off topic, about student loan debt for, for women. Women carry almost 70% of student loan debt. And the reason is, is because the Economic Policy Institute has, has figured out that first job out of college, first job out of college, there's an 8 to 12% pay disparity. You know, same school, same degree. You can go to the comm school at UVA, male and female, and there's what's from easy math say it's 10% in the middle. You, you can, they've tracked this for decades. There's a 10% dis change with the first job out of college. And that just goes from there. You know, it just goes, so which is why there's like an $18,000 gap by the time you're in your job for 10 years. If you're making 10% less, that's at the very least a 10% longer payout, which 10% more interest. So long after the, the, the boy has shed his legal, his legal responsibility to student debt, you know, the female that he works with is still paying amortized interest on top of longer payouts, and that's where, it, that's where it goes from there. So, you know, this permeates so many intersectional issues, including race. And if you take a, you take a, a woman of color and add student loan, I mean, it just multi, it's a, it becomes a force multiplier. And those are the things we really have to devolve. And that's the stuff that I talk about when I'm talking to younger women. And of, and of course, it impacts our social security because your social security is based on your working life income. Mm -hmm. Yeah. As well as 401ks and company stock options, if you have that, all of that as well. Right. Yeah, because yeah, if they give you a 6% of your income in, that 6% is, yeah. is less than because the 6% of this number is less than 6% of that number. So our next question is for Bettina, and it builds off the history of of women of color and the ERA. Um, has there also been a checkered past uh, concerning the ERA or Equal Rights Amendment and lesbians and trans individuals and other people within the LGBTQIA plus community? Um, and are there efforts to make the current ERA language more inclusive and intersectional? Yes, there are. Um, so 
One of the things, and I won't talk too much about it because it's kind of confusing, is that the ERA Coalition has explored expanding the Equal Rights Amendment language, um, partially because even though in history it's not accurate to say that women of color weren't at the head of this movement because they were. Yes, they were. They've been depicted as not, which is how history is now looking at the movement. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Shirley Chisholm, Fannie Lou Hamer, like they were all the leaders, but if that's not how you depict it, then that's not what gets put forward. Mm -hmm. And so at this point, um, it doesn't always feel very inclusive or welcoming to women other than white women. And who, well, even if you know the history, if that's like continuing to be what it's about, like focusing on issues that more predominantly affect white women, you know, things like that, then, it, then it's kind of like, well, where do, where do I fit in? And I think that the Equal Rights Amendment in its core is intersectionality, should be intersectionality, but it has to be on, it has to be purposeful. You can't just say, oh, it, sh it is. Like, you have to show that it is. You have to have leaders who internally believe that they are part of this movement. You can't just say, oh, say that it is. Like, you who take ownership. It's the same way I say with young women. Like, young women don't know about it, but then if you teach them about it, they get really excited. And But they need to also have space to feel comfortable when they're talking about something not to be said, oh, well, young women don't know because they're ignorant and they're this and they're that, because that's not going to encourage them to take ownership of the issue and to care about it. They'll just be like, okay, well, if I, if I get in there, I'm just going to be told how terrible I am, or I'm not going to be listened to, or nobody's going to care about the issues I care about. And so it's about making sure that even though there's nothing in the language that can't be interpreted as intersectional, that there's room for people to take ownership and for, for them to speak and to talk about these are the issues that matter to me and I want them to also be given equal airtime as the issues that matter to you. Um, but as a taking into effect the 2016 election cycle, we saw how many different types of, you know, things that we knew were underneath the surface but because of the political rhetoric, everyone now felt empowered to say all the racist, sexist, xenophobic things that they had been keeping down and didn't maybe said in their, their homes but weren't going to say in public. Now people feel comfortable saying it in public. This, um, the equal, the, our, some lawyers got together and said, well, what if we tackle the two major pillars that weren't included beginning, which was race and sex, um, and put them both in there. Because the 14th Amendment has flaws in how it's interpreted and how it's been interpreted from a decision in the 1800s. And um, if we're going to start all over, why not start all over fixing the rights of the wrong in the past? And, and actually explicitly naming the groups that are included so that they know that they're welcome and being protected. And it's kind of, we, we're actually not going to call it an Equal Rights Amendment, actually out of respect to the work that's been done on the Equal Rights Amendment and from hearing from our activists that they don't want it to be called an Equal Rights Amendment. Um, so it won't be named an Equal Rights Amendment, but it is very much drawn off of the idea of needing to further constitutional equality. 
And part of that is, is because many groups have felt left out, um, including LGBTQIA. And, um, and this, I, there are so many ways to interpret sex um, discrimination, and if it was in the Obama era, I would tell you, oh yeah, we're moving forward in that direction because look at what the EEOC said under Title VII. But then Sessions said, oh no, no, never mind. So we don't know how sex is going to be interpreted, but it is a much better likelihood that it will be interpreted in favor of LGBTQIA if it's in the Constitution. And one of the things I think is interesting is that we're constantly going to have to be reminding ourselves to be inclusive because when I first started working on this, the whole bathroom issue was a joke. Like, oh, Phyllis Schlafly said unisex bathrooms. Ha ha, have you ever been on an airplane? Well, now we're back at the bathroom issue, but for a different reason. Mm -hmm. And I think that sometimes it's easier to try to distance yourself from the scary conversations. And in a way, when you do that, and in, you, you make people feel like they're not welcome. And I, so I think that that's something that has happened in the past and may still be happening. And we have to be very conscious of telling people that they're welcome and conscious of letting people be leaders and conscious of people letting them self-own the issues um, so that when they speak, it's called, you know, you, you have credible messengers. Because you need someone, if you're trying to talk to a group of people and say this matters, you want them to see themselves in that person. Um, so for I'm better at talking to young women than some others. I would not be better at talking to a woman of color than a woman of color would be. Right. And um, making room for that. What I would like to say in the Virginia General Assembly, we, ju we just had a ver uh, an, op an openly lesbian woman and a transgendered woman get elected. Um, first thing they did was sign on to the Equal Rights Amendment Bill. And I sat down with them and talked to them about it. And they both completely understood that if two persons on the, if, it, if, it, if two adult human beings in the Constitution are equal, then that, you know, is in keeping. Like, I would, I would argue that the Marriage Equality Act that Mark Herring refused to take to the Supreme Court in Virginia and then went on to the Supreme Court and was passed uh, with the lady in New York who just passed, I would argue that if the Equal Rights Amendment was in place, it would have been a slam dunk. And Danica and, and uh, Dawn both understood that, and they see this uh, issue as a champion issue of LGBT, and it's an, it's an interesting thing that a whole lot of laws change if you change your legal gender. Why, as an adult in the United States of America, if you change your legal gender, do you lose some rights and gain some laws? Why does that happen? You know, if you're an 18-year-old adult in the United States of America, the law should apply to you equally. And that was something that Danica and I had a long conversation with, about. So um, in terms of that, I think that people who really study the issue understand it right away. But it's something that, you know, to Bettina's point, we, we have to make sure that we are inclusive in our language. Um, I'm very proud to say that my organization, Women Matter, uh, won the Diversity Richmond Partners in Progress Award for 2017 because of our work with the um, LGBTQIA community in Richmond. So it, 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 it's an easy sell, but it's a sell we have to make. We have to connect the dots. We gotta make sure that the, the community understands that they're part of this conversation. Absolutely important. And, and I've been very happy to find that Dawn and Danica have become real um, advocates for this issue. And, and again, like you say, you know, they are best positioned 
to talk to the community on behalf of this issue because again they hear from some old white lady and they're like yeah okay we're old white lady but when they hear from someone that they see as a, a credible source they become fabulous surrogates do you um, want to say okay, something yes i was going to ask you a question just... yes you're up next you yeah, it's your turn you're the delegate go ahead hit it um as, <laughs> as an elected official you have the power to introduce and pass legislation to improve people's lives Having women written into the Constitution would help secure or protect some rights for women, as we've heard. But what is the importance of passing additional pieces of legislation at the state and local levels that promote equality and equity, primarily for women and minorities? Thank you for the question. Hi again, everyone. I'm Janelle Wilkins. I'm a Maryland State Delegate representing District 20, which is the Silver Spring and Tacoma Park area. Um, and I'm really excited to be here. I was late because we actually had Saturday session today. So we um, were looking at and debating a number of different bills um, from 10 a.m. this morning. And the good news is that several of those bills are actually women's equality issues, women's health issues. And so I, I would say it's equally important, if not more important, um, from where I sit in terms of local legislation, state legislation, how it impacts um, women to make sure that we are on the ground making sure that these types of bills pass. For example, on the topic of equal pay, um, we have a bill that is moving forward to final passage in the House of Delegates that deals with an employer being required to provide a pay scale um, to a candidate upon request. And that brings us a step closer when it comes to women being able to make um, um, good decisions and strong decisions when it comes to those questions around pay and understanding what a pay scale is, being able to make the best judgment. Um, so that's something that, that, is, that is a really important bill that we debated. Um, as well, we have legislation dealing with the parental rights of rapists. I think that um, you all probably heard a lot about that bill. And that bill had been introduced for 10 years by a Montgomery County delegate, Delegate Dumay. Um, and finally this year, we're, we passed it and the governor signed it into law back in February. And so that is something that will make a huge impact. And what it does is it requires where there's clear and convincing evidence that a, a child was conceived um, out of rape, that the, the parental rights of that rapist can be um, revoked. Because before, a woman wasn't even able to make, make that decision. And the, 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 the assailant, the, the rapist, could actually claim those rights, especially being vindictive. So you can imagine how you know, horrific that could be. Um, so those are, those are two bills. I'll just um, name another one uh, when it comes to um, consent around this, the sexual harassment conversations that we're having. It was a woman who brought forth legislation. Um, Ariana Kelly, also from Montgomery County. The Montgomery County is doing some great stuff, um, as always. Who, she brought forth a bill that I was actually able to defend on the floor dealing with teaching consent in age-appropriate ways. Um, in, in the curriculum of our schools and every county having to um, make sure that um, beginning in elementary school that students are learning um, about consent. Again, in age-appropriate ways, right? Because a fifth grader, you're not talking with them about um, you know, consent in a sexual way, but maybe you're saying to them, um, you should ask before you use someone's phone. You know, if someone asks you to, if, if someone um, asks you to use your phone, if you ask someone to use their phone before, do you have to ask them again this time? Yes, you do. So kind of just helping them to understand the idea of asking and being asked and things like that, whereas, 
maybe in high school you're teaching in more in a more direct way around the issue of consent. So there's some some bills that we're dealing with this legislative session. The consent bill already passed the House. Um, so there are really important things as well here at the state level that I think really impact us as women. I think um, that focus is very important. Thank you. Um, so going back to the work that Maryland is doing for the Equal Rights Amendment, um, as was mentioned before, Ben Cardin, our own senator from Maryland, has reintroduced ERA legislation. So I was hoping Andrea and Bettina specifically um, can explain his legislation, the work you've done toward the goal of getting it passed, as well as other work you've done just in general on the two-state strategy. Sure. Um, well, if you're working on the states, maybe I'll go on the federal. And um, I, I, I worked on S A five when it was first introduced. Uh, okay. Well, then I guess we can both cover both. Yeah. We'll both cover yeah. both. both. Okay. Yeah. Well. Um, so, um, so with the the Ben Cardin, as I said before, is an absolutely amazing sponsor, um, and he and his staff are very passionate about moving it forward. And he shows up and he wears the buttons and. And he's very passionate, and he marched in the Women's March and was so proud of that, introduced his legislation right before it to tie it to that movement. Um, I work a lot with his chief counsel, which is generally how you know working the legislature goes. You don't generally work with the senator directly because he's way too busy for you, <laughs> which is fair enough. Um, so you work with the designated staff member. and. And uh, Bill Van Horn is like an extension to Ben Cardin as an amazing advocate for this issue. Um, we do a lot of things with him, like creating target lists of who um, they would like to see sign on to their bill. Um, right now, the target list is mostly consists of Republicans because they have a lot of Democratic support. Um, but they need to, and they have previously had Republican support, but um, the Republican that was on last session was beat by Tammy Duckworth. Uh, there are some Republicans who probably do support it. It just, when you think lots of politics reasons may not be signed on. Um, so I work with his office. We do, he actually um, likes to engage a lot with grassroots activists. And since we have a coalition of, you know, 80 or so members, he sends us tweets like last, Thursday, Wednesday, he sent us tweets. He said, we want to do a Women's History Month celebration around Ruth Bader Ginsburg's birthday, and we've created all these ERA tweets, and we're having our senators do it, and we'd love if your groups would do it too. So I send out the email with all the tweets, and it actually, he was using the hashtag pass the ERA, and it trended in DC, which is exciting. He got, um, you know, Mazia Hirono, to tweet, Diane Feinstein to tweet, Senator Menendez to tweet. Um, so we work with him in supporting it in any way that we can on a more activism route. On the two slash three state strategy, um, even though we work mostly on a federal level, we do everything that we can with our capacity to support people who are working in the states. And one of the things that we hope to do eventually, if we grow, is to have state kind of satellite offices so we could help the states and give them better resources, understanding their different regions. Um, but I do have a lot of state activists who call me who just sometimes are just asking for 
guidance, you know, or they tell me about what's going on in their states and I can talk to my national organizations and say, actually, no, please don't have someone from, you know, New York call a North Carolina um, state legislative, you know, member because that person doesn't want to hear from someone in New York. They only want to hear from someone in North Carolina. And please don't send out major blasts telling everyone to scream at the representatives that they're not constituents of. That doesn't help anyone. Um, but that <laughs> that is something that I only end up knowing because I'm talking to the state activists. And I've known Eileen and Andrew for a very long time. I know I have point persons in almost every single one of the states that have action who kind of check in with me, I check in with them, and they ask me, you know, if it's at a very influential moment, do you have Illinois, sorry, Illinois, for instance, do you have members in your states, can you send a targeted email to your Illinois members in your database asking them to help us with this? And we can do that, because we have a national d database, and that's kind of as much as, as I do. I think Andrea works much more on the grounds in the states, so I'll let her answer. Uh, well, um, we have folks who give really great fun. I mean, they are amazing. So um, because Senator Cardin introduced his bill in January, um, I will never forget because I was with <laughs> Eileen in the General Assembly and I got a call from Bill Van Horn. Senator Cardin is going to introduce his bill and we have 10 co-sponsors we would like it to be 20, and you get me 10 more co-sponsors by five o'clock today. <laughs> so we hunker down. And, and it was like, oh. okay, it's noon. Thank you for all the notice. But we did get our 10 co-sponsors. First thing I did, call our little Virginia reprobates. Hi, it's me. You know who. I need them on the ERA now. Have them call Ben Carden or I will come over there. And bring and bring a hundred of my closest friends. Including no, no, no. Eileen. Okay, okay. Right. So they were great. And then I got on the phone call several of our other activists and said, here are all the people that were co-sponsors last year. They are not on right now. We need them on. We need them on by five. And so I was like, yeah, like, this is going to work. But it did. Mm -hmm. What we periodically will do is when we're dealing with legislation and it is federal, we will have people from out of state call members who were previously on a bill, especially when we know they are really good on the phone. And then the other thing that we did, and we did this in Illinois several years ago, was when um, we did have the bill that was introduced and it had a path to the floor, we bought the Illinois state voter list and then we had a hundred activists call people in Illinois asking them to call their rep. So we will periodically make those types of investments. Or the other thing we will do is we are a technology house. We've got technology that million dollar companies have. And it's just something that I provide. So what we do is we will put together um, a direct email advocacy alert, or we also have packed through phone calling tools. A lot of our members are older, 
and they um, can't afford to make a lot of phone calls, so we pay for their phone calls. They just put in their phone number, and then they put in their address. It figures out who their representative is or senator, whoever we need to call, and then it automatically patches them through. So we can do that in all 50 states. So we will do that when we know that there is a possibility of an imminent vote. We'll buy a voter list for the state. Those are $700 for about two weeks use and or we'll do other things. Can I talk about your slap, your spank and thank? Oh, um, what is it? Uh, thank and spank. Thank and spank, yeah. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the thank and spank is, um, this is what we call it. It's kind of funny. Um, we take a list of all of our General Assembly people who is a past supporter and who is not a past supporter. And we put it up and if you just enter your zip code, it tells you who your um, electeds are, and it also tells you what their past history is. You know, you know, Delegate Smith has traditionally never supported the Equal Rights Amendment, and Senator Jones is a consistent supporter. So you can basically, it'll automatically put together a core letter, thank you for your prior support, we ask you that you support again, blah, 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 and then you have the ability to add something personalized and then it sends off. If they've never supported it, they get the spank letter. You've never supported us. We want you to support this. A little bit about it. This is how you can do it. So that way, you don't even have to know the prior history of the person that you're, you just, you, you just automatically, and we in Virginia had a 10,000 postcard campaign where we sent 10,000 postcards to our electeds that basically was, we, we paid out of a crowdfund for a billboard with a, a, a girl and doing the fearless girls, 10 year old girl doing the fearless girl position. And we had a billboard on 95 and it said, Virginia, you're, you know, you have to be next, blah, 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 blah. And it was the front of a postcard and on the back wrote a personal notice. And we targeted again in our state who were supporters and who were not supporters. So we just, and they, they noticed, I mean, some of them got like 500 postcards and, and they were very like, whoa. And so th they were trying to ignore public interest. They couldn't ignore public interest. But the thank and spank that Andrea developed was fantastic because it's just an easy boom. And they, it tweets out and it emails out and they get it. And we have it go in email. We have it go in Twitter. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And, um, and if she developed we, it. So if she's we think it makes sense, then we'll do phone. Right. What we have found is when we're dealing at the federal level, we've got to drive at least 10 phone calls in to get them to even raise their eyebrow and go, oh, okay, people actually are paying attention to this. State level, three. Right. Right. Nobody writes to their state legislators about anything, and they rarely call them. Do you agree with that? I no. disagree on that. <laughs> well, well, all right, in Virginia and in many of the other Southern states, in red states, let me put it that way. I do a lot of work in red states. Maryland is very blue, and you're very blue because you have an engaged population. Exactly. States go very red when the electorate disengages. Right. So um, being that you're a delegate from Maryland and you shook your head saying that you do hear from your constituents, how can, or what do you hear from them in regards to your bills um, regarding women's rights and, and health, as you said, um, and how can our activists and our chapter help you with the legislation you are working on this session? 
Sure, absolutely. That's a great question. Um, so for some background on women in the Maryland General Assembly, um, there we are 32% women. Yes. And we actually have the first women's caucus in, in the entire nation. I'm on the executive board. And I think um, a really great leadership um, note about the Maryland General Assembly is that in the House, there are seven standing committees. Four out of those seven standing committees are led, um, their chairs are women. So that's something um, that I think is really awesome. So we're building our power. Now we have a lot of ways to go to get from 32% to 50% women, um, but who knows, in this next um, election, hopefully we will get closer to that number or achieve that number. Um, in, in my office, I hear a lot about the bill having to do with um, domestic violence and um, the men who are convicted of domestic violence having to give up their guns, which I'm absolutely 100% in support of. And so that bill has, has started to move, which is great. It was on second reader, I believe, yesterday, which is where it was, it was discussed for amendment. It came out of the Judiciary Committee of Favorable. So that is definitely looking like something that hopefully will pass this year. It's been a number of years in the, in the making. So. Good. Good. And that's absolutely been an issue that women have championed. I believe Vanessa Atterbury and my colleague in the house is the sponsor. And then Moms Demand Action has done an excellent job. Yes. I think this has been a priority of you all as well. And they have just been in Annapolis. They have stood up for legislators who've been getting beat up by pro-gun people. Not physically beat up, but. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, we know. Figuratively speaking. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We, yeah. we don't doubt it. Has not gotten um, violated, thankfully. Um, so that has been an effort that has really been women-led, and that's something that I've been hearing a lot about. Um, I have a bill this session having to do with women's health, and specific, specifically maternal health, and women who die as a result of childbirth. Our rate here in Maryland has been rising in recent years when it comes to um, pregnancy-related deaths, and we have an entire committee um, of clinicians that takes a look at every single birth certificate. If the woman um, died a year after, after pregnancy, they look at it, they determine what was her cause of death, how could this have been prevented, and they found that 70% of these maternal deaths could have been prevented. And so in taking a look at that issue, it's been in the news a lot, NPR has done a really good job profiling it. Yep. Um, and in taking a look at the committee and the work that they're doing, what I realized is that it's mainly clinicians at the table, which is great, but what about the impacted women the, and their families, the women who are high risk, who aren't at the table to share their stories and share things that I would never know or think about and that maybe these clinicians would never know or think about because we're not on the ground working necessarily with these women. And so my bill brings stakeholders, community organizations, impacted women and their families to the table to be a part of that committee and for their recommendations and for their stories to be a part of the solutions as well. I think when we talk about intersectionality, I think that when we look at any issue and deem it a women's issue, I think we always, always, always have to take a look at how different races and people who um, subscribe to different identity groups are, are impacted. For this particular issue, when it comes to black women, black women are 2.7 times more likely to die as a result of pregnancy, right? So if we don't take a look as well um, at that disparity and why it is that this particular group is experiencing that rate of death at such a higher rate and don't have, if we don't have them at the table as part of the decision making and as part of developing the recommendations, then we're going to just see this disparity grow and this issue continue to, to um, 
to, to grow. So I'm excited about that bill. That's HB 1518, and um, it, that bill passed second reader as well. So hopefully that will be on the floor for final passage next week. So yeah. you can call your or email your delegates right and support yes. the bill. And that's the last thing to mention. We have 23 more days left of session. We're out of session April 9th. That's signing die. So whatever bills it is that you're prioritizing, especially women's issues, now is the time to make those calls. Monday is crossover, and that's why we had to be in session today. That means that um, your bill has to pass a chamber and move over to the other chamber by Monday in mm -hmm. order for it to be considered, in order for it to have a chance to pass. So now is literally the time, if there's an issue that's on your radar, to contact um, your Maryland members to let them know about your priorities. Yes, yeah, so please call and contact them <laughs> about the bill Janelle just mentioned. Um, definitely support her legislation. It's a good piece of legislation. Yeah. And, and uh, you weren't here when we were first introducing ourselves, and, and I was talking about how my background's in healthcare. Oh. And, and one of my, and I've done a lot of work in, in pro bono work in the at-risk communities and communities of color and maternal health. And one of the things that I do in my work is I always play this intersectional game in my head about how does that issue affected or not affected by the Equal Rights Amendment. And when I hear you talking about the, the increased risk of women of color in healthcare maternal outcomes, it ties back to me to the wage disparity and the access to good health care and the access to pay, and it, it becomes an economic disparity issue at its core. It's access to what you need to be have a better outcome. So to me, this is just another reason why communities of color benefit from an equal rights amendment and all women benefit from an equal rights amendment because it would, it would make that, it would empower women in this paradigm to improve it and have better outcomes and have better access and better pay and better socioeconomic power. So. And you mentioned, you were talking about student loans earlier. Um, black women actually take out more student loans. They have to take out more student loans than any other group of people. Yep. Um, so like yep. you were just saying, uh, having access to equality or equity right. within our legislation could help them with that situation or make it so they don't have to take out so many loans. Right now they have education. higher loans, lower salary, longer payout, more interest. Exactly. Yes, so definitely important to make sure everybody gets as close to an even playing field as, as possible mm -hmm. via our legislation. Back to you, Eileen. You mentioned you were talking about your efforts in Virginia before, and Andrea, I know you also live in, in Virginia, so you can touch on this as well. Um, can you describe the work that you have done in Virginia regarding the ERA? You mentioned that it was just up for um, ratification in the state and did not pass. Um, we didn't get out of committee. That's right, correct. Stonewalling committee. Yes. We would have passed if it had gone to yes. both chambers. We had the votes bipartisan support in both chambers. Yes. Um, Which is both good and bad news. Yeah. Because it was the most frustrating year we've ever had, but it was also the year where we proved that it can pass in Virginia if they would stop stonewalling it. Yeah. So how does um, gerrymandering in the state, um, GOP-controlled legislatures, and this can go for Virginia and as well as any other states, um, and male-dominated legislatures affect ratification efforts? And I know you also talked about uh, working across party lines, if you right. can throw that in there as well. Well, I was talking to a female senator, Republican senator, a very conservative woman, and she supports it intellectually, but she doesn't have the 
She doesn't have the ability to go against her caucus. Her, but the interesting conversation that I had with her was she agreed that equality for women is a problem. She agreed. And, 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 and I said to her, and we had this meeting of the minds where I was able to convey to her, you know, it's really interesting that when I talk to a person that I'm trying to persuade that the Equal Rights Amendment needs to be addressed, it's always easier to talk to a woman, no matter how conservative she is, because this woman is extremely conservative. I said, because I don't have to spend the first half of the conversation convincing you that there's something to discuss. We already know that this is a thing. And she started laughing, because she knows I'm right. When I'm talking to a middle-aged white man who's probably, in most of the men, most of the people, it's an interesting thing about the General Assembly in Virginia. General Assembly in Virginia is a part-time assembly, which I think you have here. And most of the people that become, that enter into the General Assembly are independently wealthy. Or they have businesses that are self-sustaining. They can't just leave their job for three months a year. You know, they, you know, so people don't run unless they own a store or they own a chain of gas stations or they own, you know, a, a law firm and they've got four partners and they can just disappear. Or they're a doctor and they've got a practice. You know, there are only a certain subset of people that can do this, to, can even attempt to run for a part-time job because they have to leave their job for three months and be able to do that. And most private employers are going to say no. We had one woman running who was told if you win, you're going to have to quit your job. And she was like, ah, you know. And then we have another woman who's in, who's a state employee, and they're in this big fight about whether or not she should be able to take a leave of absence from her state job, which is interesting because we have Republican men who work for county government, yeah. and they disappear that's for three months. And that's not a problem. So there's a whole lot of stuff going on. So they're in these, they're in these closed societies, and many of them are independently wealthy or own businesses, and they don't want to hear about all of this stuff. They don't believe it's a real thing. So just convincing them that it's a real thing is half the battle. I mean, if I can get them to even acknowledge that there might be a case for inequality of gender, and it took me 15 minutes to get there, that's actually a win when you're talking to a 50-year-old grandpa. And I will tell, always tell young activists, you're talking to your conservative Uncle Bill. That's who you're talking about. You're talking to Uncle Bill. This is who you're talking to. And that's where you have to start. So it's a really big thing, and a lot of it is gerrymandered. We are so gerrymandered. And proof is, when you look at the Virginia, our administration is all blue, and it's been blue for a while. We've got an attorney general that's a Democrat. We've got a lieutenant governor that's a Democrat. We've got a governor that's a Democrat. Uh, we have two Democratic senators, and yet our House and our Senate is predominantly red because it's so gerrymandered. And when you look at the way it's all, it all looks like pieces of linguine. We had a, a Supreme Court decision last year. Bobby Scott's district was three you had to drive out of his district, through another district, and into another district, and through another district. I mean, they weren't even contiguous because of the fact that they basically packed African Americans. They basically gave Bobby Stott a district where he could be the black congressman from Virginia. Um, quick point of that. You could um, almost ask any African American who your congressman is, and if they said it's Bobby Scott, it didn't matter whether they lived on the water or whether they lived in Richmond, they were probably right. Yeah, because they, they packed them in Norfolk, which is two and a half hours away. And Richmond. And Richmond. Richmond and Norfolk are two and a half hours away. And you had to drive through Republican New Kent and Republican Newport News 
to get, I mean, it was ridiculous. So, and that ended up being a Supreme Court case, which was like, no, this is too gerrymandered. You're going to have to fix this. And, and so what happened was we are so gerrymandered. We really, really are. And they're, and they're very, 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 very complacent about that. So what has happened is that the districts didn't change, but the, some of the people have changed. Like Henrico County is slowly turning blue. Chesterfield County is turning blue. Even counties like Hanover in the district where Andrea and I live, which are very red, are also, I would say in the next 20 years, is going to turn blue. So we are, we are, by changing demographics, changing, but it's coming slow. But one of the things that I find is a motivator when I talk to people in Virginia about what we just did with the election is I say to them, we have got to get, we've got to change because it's the state house that does the districts. Mm -hmm. In Virginia, we had um, we had a we have a group called Virginia 2021, and they work about gerrymandering in Virginia. And they put together a documentary called Gerrymandered, and it's Brian Ross Cannon and Bill Oglesby, both friends of ours, who put this. You can watch it on PBS. Go home and Google it. And it talks about the gerrymandering in Virginia. We we run with gerrymandering as being one of the biggest issues in Virginia because it's only because the 219 race, the 27 to 218 race and the 219 race is going to affect the 220 race because we are going to be redistricting in 220. If we don't have some blue control, they're going to gerrymander it for another 10 years and we're never going to get Virginia back. We're never going to get it back. So I I present gerrymandering in Virginia as the key political issue that intersects everything. And, and it really does. So yes, we're very gerrymandered and all of, of the southern states are heavily, heavily gerrymandered. It is, to me, it's an absolute corruption of a process. Maryland is too. Is it? Yes. As badly as Virginia? Yeah, well, I don't know Virginia that well. But. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Oh, is it? Yeah. We'll see. Yeah. And then we're like, oh, wait, no, we don't have a problem with gerrymandering. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 I have a problem with gerrymandering. I think we have to have a representative participatory government. And what I'm finding in Virginia is it's so gerrymandered that one of the reasons that we were able to get 13 seats, which was an unbelievable thing for us to do in Virginia, is we were able to take all the Democrats who felt like they were just wasting their time and say, you have to vote collectively. There's more of us that was like a, there's more of us than you think. We've got to be heard. We've got to be seen. The apathy that comes from thinking it doesn't matter has been part of the problem. And what we found is when we got people energized, there's more of us than we think. But because it looks like such a lost cause, nobody's bothering. Uh, well, Virginia has another problem. In 2015, Virginia had 45 seats where there was no Democratic candidate. Yeah, that's so how apathetic we got. Candidates can be a problem as well. That's the other problem. We got so apathetic, we're like, we're not even going to run a candidate. It's not going to do any good. Well, that, 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 that causes apathy. I mean, severe apathy. And that's what we were suffering from. So now we're using this kind of... We'll see what we did in sixteen and seven. You know, in in, in seventeen, six, we can do it again. We won in sixteen. We, well, you know I, what I, I mean. I mean, you, this last November when we had when we had all these piece thirteen right, people elected. Right, right. Like, see what we did. This is what happens when we get up and we we fight back. You got to get engaged. So we're kind of building on that momentum. We're building on that momentum, and there is now a uh, an enthusiasm gap two to one for Democrats over Republicans in Virginia which is why there's a lot of conversation about what's going to happen in congressional races. There's a lot of races in Virginia that are the enthusiasm gap is putting several congressional races that w should have been red and would have considered be solid red a year ago are now toss-ups. 
because we have awoken a sleeping giant. But gerrymandering continues to be, but we're using it as a talking point that we've got to flip these seats because we don't want them to be able to line the districts in 20 because that's what's going to happen. We're going to go up again. It's another 10-year district drawing, and we don't want it to be gerrymandered red again. It can't be. Did you want to say something on gerrymandering in Maryland? Sure. I, we have the same problem on the Democratic side. Um, in my district in particular, and I think, I think this has been right, widely reported, I think John Sarbanes district has been named like the number one most gerrymandered district like in the nation or something along those lines. He has part of my district in Silver Spring and then he has Baltimore as well. So very different, yes, very different areas, obviously very different communities and needs. So it's just a very odd thing. So I think that as a whole, Democrats, Republicans, we need an independent commission. And the census 2020 is, is coming up soon. And we really need to make sure that um, we, we, we redraw those lines in a way that's very, that's more fair. We did do a bill last session that was more of a compact, which I don't think is as, um, what be as effective, but basically it said, if I, th I think it was five states, Virginia was one of them, basically all the states that are around us, um, come together and join this compact that will put together a commission and that an independent commission among our states that would redraw the districts. So yeah, that was, that was something we did last session. But you know, with the compact, Virginia would have to ratify this, the other, you know, Pennsylvania would have to ratify it in other states. So yeah. that creates a challenge. And the interesting thing is Andrea can speak to this because she's the IT person. There are computer <laughs> programs that can do fair districting. There, there are, and, and, the, and the, the human toll is that a lot of, not only is the voter apathetic, but so is the elected. I mean, I walk in and they're like, I could be dead and I'd still be reelected. I mean, they're just so <laughs> arrogantly secure. Didn't that actually happen in 2016, I think? Someone who was dead was still on the ballot and won? <laughs> I, I think oh, you're right. Not in Virginia, but that wouldn't surprise me. Past, but yeah, yes. I mean, you know, they really are just like, Oh, right. I'm going right. to win no matter what I do. I'm, I'm never going to, I don't go to any events. I don't talk to anybody. I'm just, I'm just, it's not going to, so, but we can, we can, we can, and Andrea can speak to this. We can, we have programs we can fairly district, but we've also got programs that are so laser sharp that they can gerrymander those down to addresses of voting history to the point where we will never, that the party in power, you will never ever see a fair and representative election. Just never, because if the, the programs are, so we can either do it, we can either use that precision program to put together something that's fair, or we can do something that's so tightly gerrymandered in favor of those in power that we'll never undo it. One of the things we are going to need to watch uh, regarding gerrymandering is we are going to have to watch and make certain that we properly fund the census because so many of our districts or all of our districts are based on number of people. If we do not get a proper count of who is living where, that is another thing that allows a huge contribution to gerrymandering. And it also denies many communities the appropriate federal and state funding that they should be receiving for education, among other things. So we are going to need to be very, very watchful of that. I never thought I would have to say we are going to have to make certain that they do not do anything on the federal level to in any way damage the 2020 census. Because mm -hmm. there's already talk about, well, we're just going to pull funding and then that way. And that way, maybe they'll only count 70% because that's all they can do. And then they'll figure, guess what the rest are.
So Andrea, I know a lot of the work that you do um, centers around digital advocacy. Yes. Um, can you just describe the importance of that, what you do, um, and how that has helped with your work in the ERA specifically? Um, one of the great talents that we had with the ERA was the fact that um, a number of the women that were very involved with this campaign were very talented meme makers. So the old saying, a picture is worth a thousand words for the ERA, we made it worth a million words. So what we were doing early on when we were really building up support for three state, because that had always been this weird, odd, you know, oh, it's those people again kind of bill, was we began making pictures and then we had our target list and then we would take an individual member of Congress and then we would say that, wow, they're not supporting both paths to constitutional equality. They support this, why don't they support the other thing too? And then we would just circulate those memes. And we got to the point where Eh, put up a meme, about a week later, we're going to get somebody else on. We also used Facebook a lot to circulate articles. Yep. Um, Mark Warner, my favorite um, Republicrat in Virginia, <laughs> um, uh, Mark and I have been fighting about this for years, um, refused, absolutely refused oh to God. get on the ERA state bill. So we wrote a little article. Is Mark Warner a chauvinist or a misogynist. <laughs> there was no third option. So we sent it to his office and we said, you know, if you don't get on this bill, and we gave him 10 days, we are going to publish this article and circulate it all over the internet. Well, we called him up three days before we were supposed to do it, and that was back in the days when his staff was rather snippy. Oh, Nicholas. Yeah, and so we were like, well, you know, uh, we sent you the article. Fine, go ahead and publish it. You won't dare. Mm, and we're yeah. thinking, whoa. So we published the article. The day after the article was published, I get this call from <laughs> Dear Bill going, I can't believe you folks published that article. Black. Well, what part of... We sent him the article first in draft form, told him when we were going to publish it, and told him what he needed to do to make us not publish it. And I was Did he get on it. the bill? I was quoting yes. it. Thanks, Andrea. <laughs> <laughs> Did he get on the bill? Yes. So your point is? You know? Yep. It's our job to get people on the bill. Right. He's still breathing, and he's on the bill. Right. We did our job. And then he turned around and wrote a wonderful press release <laughs> about how supportive he was. And then we were like, oh, thank you, Senator. So, yeah, it, you know, it's just, it's unfortunate. We have to play these games. Right. But It's really, really unfortunate, you know. And, and again, I'll go back well. to, yeah, and, 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 and I go back to my original statement when I first decided, oh, I live in an unratified state. I really naively thought we were going to bring this issue to them. They're going to go, oh, thanks for pointing this out. We're just going to do this. We can't. Of course we're going to do this. How did we miss this? I really thought it was just going to go. I was just so naive. I never, ever expected to get tuned. But that's what I got. Mm -hmm. so, are you leaving? No, yeah, oh, you're I have just... to leave in a couple of minutes because oh, okay. of my mom. But... Well, you have a question. You had a question. Well, I asked it. 
Well, okay. Um, do we want to answer her question before she leaves? Because she's got to... Um, she was asking about sure, Alice Paul and... Sure, if you want to ask, uh, ask real quick, we can, we can make exception for the one question. Well, I it was just, I mean, I have a number of questions, but I, this has been great. Um, my mom's 94 and I... Oh, we understand. We understand. Yeah, um, uh, I, I was just, I get concerned every time somebody brings up Alice Paul because, because hardly ever does anybody from now who brings it up say, but she thought the vote should be for white women. And, and, I, and I always feel like, ooh, well, first of all, we should be straightforward about that and say that that was a big problem and talk about um, women of color who have been very involved in, um, in trying to, to get mm -hmm. the vote and then uh, I'm not sure that Alice, so I think Alice Paul was almost callously practical. And so I don't think that she, I don't know if she thought that necessarily as she just callously would say, this is how we get it done and that's how we get it done. Um, I think that from what I've read, she said that white women marching is the optic that's for the best. That was the 1913 march. And, yeah, and, uh, yeah. So and again, to play devil's advocate, she was told not to let African-American women march. And she actually said, yes, they could, but then they had it in the yeah. back of the line. Yeah. So Which is still callous. It's yeah. callous, but in, in, yeah. the, in the date and time, it was brave. It, it, was, it was her, it was, it was, it was a, she was at that point taking a radical position. But it's interesting, when the Deltas um, had a, a big march in Washington, to celebrate the fact that those are the ladies that marched hundred years ago, the Delta sorority, yes. the HSBCU, and and right they and that but there were south and women matter came and we marched in that rally and we marched in the back on purpose as a gesture of reconciliation and we literally had our banner like behind us we were the caboose I mean we're literally the back of the march and I walked with George Barker who's the state senator in Virginia who walked with us so you know we we have to honor. Um, the history as it is, but we also have to contextualize and say, well, what can we do today to make that close that gap? And, and to us, marching in the back of the march behind the Delta women was a, a sort of a circle closure of reconciliation. And I also make the point when I'm talking about uh, the 14th Amendment. And, and I've had this conversation with, with women of color. We talk about the 14th Amendment and people go, oh, black people. I'm like, no, no, no. Black men, black men. Let's let's stop and understand that black women were not included. They were thrown under the bus with that as well. That was my, my question. You know, you mentioned the fourteenth, and the fifteenth was the one that introduced the word male into the country. male inhabitant and male citizen. Exactly. They could have said inhabitant and citizen. They said male on. It was a purposeful, I mean, as Scalia said, what, they didn't mean women. One of the things though, I would say is that as much as I think that. I wouldn't, I would be want to say what Alice Paul was thinking because I wasn't there and I wasn't her. Um, and it may not have been what you said may now have been actually what she was thinking. It may have been what she had to do. And, but we do still have to recognize that those race relations happened. Um, whether or not it was Alice Paul wanting them to happen, we can't say. But that they did happen and that, that we need to address them. And that that is how our, the history of our society was that radical was allowing people to march in the back. 
-hmm. And that's a problem that's bigger than Alice Paul um, that we need to accept as a movement that in some ways we're all complicit with that. And white women have been. Sorry, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. I just want to jump in here because I think for me, I definitely consider myself a feminist, but I'm I'm black and I'm a woman and those two identities are things that I cannot separate. And I, I think that is really important for us to have a very honest and direct conversation when it comes to the history of the women's rights movement. I would not characterize or be dismissive of the fact that it was not an integrated movement. It was not a movement where African Americans and black people were allowed to necessarily be at the forefront of it, where the history of the movement was also fighting with um, at all times the civil rights movement where where black people were fighting for just their basic rights and freedoms. So I think that some of some of the comments maybe are a little are a little bit you know um, dismissive of what I think it what what I think is actually a true history mm-hmm. of what at times the women's movement has been, which is um, sometimes erasing some of um, some some of the the challenges of African American women and Black people in general. And I 100% agree with the statement that at this at this point, you know, what can we do? That was an important, very symbolic moment for the Deltas for them to march in the front. And I think that there's a lot of strides now. We've talked a lot about intersectionality, but I do think that when we when we look at history and we look at movements, that um, I think that it is important to you know. To just be be honest and direct that mm-hmm. at all times we just it, we just weren't it just wasn't an inclusive movement and that's playing out right now when it comes to the women's march and you probably saw you know some of the the women who call themselves womenists or some of the African American women leaders who one had to fight their way to be in the leadership of planning that march if you think back to the beginning of the planning of the march mm-hmm. and also to the women the black women now who often critique the women's movement and and feminism as not being a part of it. I think that we have to acknowledge where that comes from, why that is, and just make strides to Mm -hmm. be as inclusive as possible. So I just wanted to raise that for what it's worth. We're having a women's seminar in Richmond in three weeks, April 5th, 6th, and 7th. Yeah, We we have... Sorry, about 30 more minutes, and there are two additional questions I'd like to ask our our panelists. But I just want to, on Janelle's point here, um, if everyone in the audience just wants to take a look around to see what she's talking about, about Mm -hmm. needing inclusion, um, not particularly a diverse Mm -hmm. audience, so obviously there's still more work to get done. Um, So um, Eileen and, and Andrea, if you have any tips, we always like to give our attendees um, some action items that they can they can leave with and Janelle you can touch on this as well um, with stuff that you're doing on I know you you did a bit earlier in Maryland but um, Andrea and Eileen is there and you can as well Bettina on the federal level um, is there anything that activists in Maryland can do since Maryland has already ratified the ERA to help with ratification in Virginia go ahead um. I don't really have anything right now that I'm interested in. Well, we're off session right now. But when we're in session, we need you to make phone calls after hours. And I say that because if you call during hours, they're going to say, do you where do you live? What's your zip code? And but if you call after hours, (laughs) they count that they can't ask you that. So they don't. So we can call from Maryland. You can call from Maryland and say, hello there, Delegate Smith. 
Um, you know, and, and you know, HJ Res 15 is coming up and we want you to support it. Boom. They don't know where you're from. They're like, oh, we got 25 phone calls last you know, night on this bill. Oh, my gosh. And they will get the numbers put in front of them. And they're like, oh. And, and so that's, that's one of the things. And same thing with Twitter. They don't know who you are when you t Twitter. Same thing with emails. Send an email. Every now and then I'll get an email back. Um, can you please tell us where you live? I just don't even answer it. Because they're trying to decide whether or not they're going to toss it or not. I know what they're doing. But if they don't know, they'll count it. Unless they know what. Would you send out emails asking people if they're constituents? Um, uh, we, yes, we ask when people call or, yeah, yeah. But if you, you know, call after hours and it's, it's a great your, idea, yeah, it's a great <laughs> idea. Uh -huh. Yeah. Yeah. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta work the room you're in. You gotta work the room you're in. And I also would say that, yes, you have to work with the diverse, diverse communities. You've got to get into the African-American community. You've got to get into the LGBTQIA community. You have to understand that all means all. All means all. You got to get to the young people. You got to go to the colleges. You got to get the young people. You got to go to the deltas. You got to, you know, that. You know. Okay. Oh, you're okay. Right? Okay. <laughs> yeah. uh, I love me the deltas. <laughs> the deltas in Virginia are badass. Oh, and they're just amazing. And they're wonderful. And they're, they're just like in your face, and I love them. And uh, Andrea and I were asked to speak at the Delta Convention, and all these ladies in red, they all took those pins and they all went to the General Assembly, and ah, oh, that, was, that was beautiful. But, it, but you, you, you're right, you have to be purposeful. And we have a, we have a meeting next Thursday, a roundtable discussion of can, can women's equality movement be intersectional, and should it be intersectional, and how could it be intersectional? And we've got a lot of younger African-American women coming who want to talk about all of the history and you know and 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 we want to say to them you're right but today we need to get together how do we do that how do we do that how do we how do we reconvene and do that you know how do we do that and you know gestures like walking in the back of the, you know having a meeting and, and having inviting because i can't i can't be we talked earlier about surrogates. I can't be the sir. I need, I need the buy-in of people who are going to speak to other people. I can't be the surrogate. I have, to, I'm not the voice. I'm not the voice. And I know that, but I have to, I have to work with a diverse group and send them out like connectors. Anyone who's ever read Mountain, Ma Malcolm Gladwell's book, The Tipping Point, we need connectors in every community. And we've, we've done a lot. When I first started this, no one even knew what the ERA was. Well, what's secret rights in the ERA? What's that? What is that? Now, good or bad, they call me the ERA lady, which is kind of silly. And, and I was laughing with one of the Republican women. I said, you know, um, you know I, we've got a lot of people involved this year, hundreds of people. I said, so, you know, I'm not the ERA lady anymore. And she just looked at me and she goes, no, you'll always be the ERA lady. <laughs> yeah, there's more of you, but you'll always be. But it can't just be, oh, there's that lady that's where, and that just, I just look like some sad, pathetic old lady that just won't go home. You know, and it can't be that. We need, we need a movement. And again, we need a movement of age, of race, of gender, of sexual orientation. We need a movement that's like, wait a minute, this isn't done, this isn't right. And it's just that fundamental. And how to get there, I welcome all voices. Please tell us how to do that. I'd like to think that days like this help, but to your point, where's the diversity? There's not enough young women here. There's not enough brown women here. There's not enough black women here. There's not enough men here. 
I was excited about the young women that yeah. were. Oh yeah, the they, but they still don't <laughs> They still don't reflect the the, per, the the population density. Um, do you have anything to add on the federal level? It's what our activists can do to help? Oh, ERA. um, what our activists can do to help the ERA for the for the federal level. Well, first of all, um, call your members of Congress who are both on and thank them. Um, and then I guess kind of beyond that, it is kind of, it's hard sometimes when you're from a state where that's majority Democrat and most of the, your representatives have signed on to think like, oh, what can I do? But one of the issues that we have, and I had someone from a very influential office, their, their chief of staff tell me, you know, you have to make sure that your friends are actually your friends because if they're just signing on and doing nothing, like, it's not really a great friend. Mm -hmm. um, do your friends actually prioritize this? Do your friends actually have any intention on moving this? Because um, otherwise, like, why are they, I mean, how is it that much better than them not signing on if they're just signing on for face value? And I think part of it is that even if you're a member of Congress or senators on, you need to talk to them about how important it is for you to move it forward, which is why Ben Cardin got on because of Holly and her... Yeah, yeah, oh, yes, it is. I mean, he tells me. No, no, ben, no ben, Bill will tell me. He'll be like, you know, no matter what, like, I've always got to be in touch with these ladies because they brought it to me. <laughs> so, yeah. So, and because and he knows that his constituents cares, care, sorry, that was care, then he, then he cares. And to your point, the same thing on the state levels. Like, Illinois is coming up in April. Go on the Illinois legislature website and get the names and don't call up and don't yell at them. And, and they don't want to hear a lot of words from you. They just just counting yeses and noes. Again, call after hours. I'm going to do it. Call after hours and say, I sent a letter to the Illinois state legislature two years ago that they read on the floor. They read on the floor. Eileen Davis RN. They didn't, they didn't ask if I was a constituent. I sent a letter and it was read. So the point is, and the same thing with Nevada. My letter was read in Nevada too. The point of the matter is you want to call up after hours and don't, 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 don't hurt them. Don't say things that hurt them. Just call up and say, hi, um, I'm, I'm, my name is bloody bloody. And I want you to vote yes on whatever, I know what the bill number is. I want you to vote yes on HR one, the rights, ratifying the rights amendment and hang up. It's all they want. You don't have to say because or go into any details because you might be saying something that the activists there don't want you to say. So don't even bother with that. You don't have to frame anything. Just say, I know this is coming up and I'd like you to support it. And just run through it after hours and then send an email if you want. Same thing. You can do an email, a BCC email, which is what I do. Everybody and they all get it. And some of them write back and say, where do you live? And I just ignore it. <laughs> but a lot of them don't. And I do it on both sides. And you can also you can also Twitter them or tweet them or whatever you call it, um, you know. But and you can do that too. I will often do all three, just because boom 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 boom, and they get it. And there's also this thing called the thunderclap, which I don't understand all of. It's like a that's like a it's like a tweet storm or some kind of silliness like that. But but yeah, but you can do that. And, you, and Arizona's up for grabs. Yeah. Same thing in Arizona. Do the same thing in Arizona. Just do it. You know, just the hardest part is going to be entering all the addresses. And then you just shoot it out. Yes. One of the other things that you can do is, even when you are not a constituent, and I'm talking your state and federal, is we will periodically have people call 
all members of committee of jurisdiction and say, hi, the XYZ bill is in your committee. Please vote yes to bring it to the floor. Boom. I have uh, one final question for our panelists, and then we're going to open up for some uh, discussion and Q&A from the audience. Um, and this goes for all of our panelists. Since it is Women's History Month, who is your favorite woman in history and why? You want to start? Sure. <laughs> I think um, Shirley Chisholm was mentioned Ooh. earlier. Yes. <laughs> and as, as someone who, who is a public official, she's just someone that I absolutely identify with. I love her quote that if they don't give you a seat at the table, bring your own folding chair. And I think that that is just so appropriate for, for us as women. And sometimes we're excluded from various tables. Sometimes it feels like an old boys club, but sometimes we have to grab our, our own chair and sit down and fight our way in and make sure that we're part of the conversation. So Shirley Chisholm's absolutely one of my favorites and I aspire to be unbought and unbossed. Like that. <laughs> That's right. Um, I have three, Shirley Chisholm. Bella Abzug and the notorious RBG, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I love me some Ruth Bader Ginsburg. This is the book Sisters-in-Law by Linda Hirschman. If you're looking for some good reading, read it. It talks about, it's largely about all the cases. You will realize that everything we have gained has come from something along the way that Ruth Bader Ginsburg had her hands on. When she, back in the day when she was an ACLU lawyer, I mean, everything we have has come from that woman. Every, right, every incremental right we have, everything we have has come from her. She is amazing. And, and I look at the, the, the trajectory of her life and how she, she could have gone in a different path, but she didn't. She, this, is the, this was something that she was always called to do, and she met the challenge of what she was called to do. And she's simply, really, literally, probably, I think, the most influential woman in the world because of where she is, how, where she's brought us to, and what she does. And my only request is that she live forever. <laughs> and yeah, at least until we yeah. get a new president. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. Oh, we're going to need Your that. turn. Um, mine are interesting. Um, Barbara Lee, oh. because... What? I love Barbara Lee. Yes, of course. Yes. Everybody loves Barbara Lee. Uh, Barbara Lee, because of the tremendous strength and courage that she has been able to show as not only a black woman in Congress, but a member of Congress, being willing to go out and stand alone and take a very unpopular position well on the Iraq war, long before anybody else was willing to take up that vote. And then the other one is really, really strange and bizarre, but one of the most badass women in history who was like, screw it, I'm going in my own direction. I don't care where anybody likes it or not. Give it up for Cleopatra. <laughs> <laughs> I want to do. I want to do an honorable mention of Barbara Jordan. Oh, oh yeah, okay. absolutely. She amazing. I what a what a what a rhetor, What a She oh man, that woman can give a speech and she can lay down an issue like nobody. I love her. Always did. Love her. Well, now that everyone's talked, I'm going to, <laughs> so I'm going to do three different disciplines. In the law, it would be Ruth Bader Ginsburg. In literature, it would be Maya Angelou. And in science, it would be all the women scientists who aren't included in any of the textbooks you read. That, um, that I was a biology major, and every textbook I would read, 
it would talk about the women and men who worked on something and how, and then the man got the Nobel Prize. Oh, yeah. yeah. So every yeah. woman in science who hasn't been recognized. Albert Einstein's wife did all his math equations. Mm. All his math equations. And then, and they were on papers together, and then they divorced, and her name just got pulled. She disappeared from what? She disappeared. She no longer existed. She didn't have a husband. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep. I don't know if everyone heard that because you mumbled it. Oh, it was a joke. <laughs> I know, but it was funny. Well, I'm going to answer my own question real quick before we open it up to the audience. Mine is Abigail Adams. Uh, she was an early women's rights, civil rights advocate, um, also an abolitionist. If you go to the Massachusetts Historical Society's website, you can read the letters. She and John wrote a ton of letters to each other, and they saved them, knowing that they would be historically important one day. You can read them all, and Abigail is sass to the max. So right. yes. <laughs> definitely suggest going on the website and checking those out. On a point of personal privilege, I would agree with you, and I would say that's when the women's movement started. Mm -hmm. And my respect for Abigail Adams is so high that my daughter's name is Abigail. So. There you go. Awesome. Okay. And her daughter is running for Congress. She is Virginia's 7th oh, District. Okay. She is indeed, yes. All right. What's her last name? Spanberger. S-P-A-N-B-E-R-G-E-R. -E -E All right, we got the plug-in. Okay. Well, I, I didn't do it, she did. <laughs> My daughter will kill me for that. Because she would have said, Mom, you shouldn't have done that. But right. I didn't do it, Andrea did. <laughs> so we have um, a short amount of time for some questions from the audience. Holly, I know you've been asking, and then you right here. Um, so we'll go one, two, three. Okay, I think brings it back to Ben Cardin. I think if we don't capitalize on the Me Tooism and, and um, standing up for people, we're missing. I mean, this is the, the, the quintessential, if you see something, say something. We don't have rights. And if we just keep saying it's okay that women are not included, then who else do we dismiss? And everything just kind of, what kind of world are we in? And so I, I, uh, uh, I also I just want to put in a plug for Gerda Lerner. I think we're here because of women's history, because of Gerda Lerner. So there's a little sheet that talks about her. She mm -hmm. was the kind of the mother of women's history. Um, so anyway, uh, that we should do something. I'm thinking that an action item would be to get the names organized Illinois, so that and numbers and everything. And I might do that once I do my taxes. Okay, and then send it out and just say, there's, this is the addresses. Yeah, you know, one person can do that for everybody. Right. Exactly, right. exactly, right. yeah, yeah. And remember that, I, I think also, I gotta say, I think having two different directions divides us. And I'm really sorry about it. If you saw that Louise Slaughter died? Yes, yes. She was on the, um, the three states thing and not on Carolyn Maloney's Bill, and who was from New York. They're both from New York. That surprised me. I just looked it up to see. So anyway, I, I think we didn't go into that, but I think it's important. Uh, uh, may I speak to that? I, I would agree with you. That, and we did use the Me Too in the Time's Up. We, actually, I wore a pin that said Time's Up when we were going around. And, and a couple of our speakers, and I just did a rebuttal in our paper down in Richmond uh, to a woman who wrote an anti-Equal Rights Amendment opinion piece. And what I was talking about is one of the things that I get in the General Assembly is a lot of these older men are always like, well, I'm worried about the law of unintended consequences. This might do this and it might do that and blah, 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 blah. And they have all kinds of like 
ridiculous fear-mongering things that they're worried about. And what I wrote was the law of unintended consequences has already taken its place. What we have today with Me Too and sexual harassment and, and, and you know, the weak enforcement of Title IX and the weak enforcement of all these intermediate laws that are supposed to be doing their job, is the, the law of unintended consequences is all over it because this is what you get when you ignore something for 100 years. What we have right now is that's the rendering, that's the clarified butter of 100 years of ignoring the fact and pretending that we're constitutionally protected and we're not. Yeah. So I absolutely agree with you, but we are doing that, but that needs to be done a lot. That is the message of 2018, absolutely. And it, that's why we got, that's how we got our two Republican sponsors lined up for next year. They see the intersectional issue there in terms of, you know, all of these issues are fundamentally go back to the Equal Rights Amendment, as do some of the issues you were talking about. So everyone should leave with an action item, a personal action item. Mm -hmm, exactly. Yeah. Although I do want to say, though, um, going back to the conversation and what Janelle was saying is that we do have to be cautious even when we're talking about like the Me Too and the Time's Up and things like that because I was just having a conversation with someone who had interviewed Tarana Burke who points out that a lot of times women of color are left out of the Me Too discussion even though she was the she person it. who started it mm -hmm. and and uh, Listen Milano popularized it. Um, and even looking at what is the money going towards the Time's Up movement, like none of the money, one of her things that she's trying to do is get it to go to like the the survivors. Mm -hmm. um, none of it is going to the survivors now. Um, so in just everything that we're doing, thinking about, again, intentional, intentionally thinking about, you know, are we making sure that this is intersectional? Because I think that that's the only way that we're going to get the Equal Rights Amendment is if people, if everyone feels like they're at the table. So our action items should be both making sure that we use this moment, but that we use this moment in the right way, and we use this moment to highlight our issues and then the issues of people who may not be highlighted right now. I also think that, again, I talked about it briefly, the intersectionality of the issue. When someone's talking about an issue like domestic violence, point out, that VAWA is weekly. You know, be if you're if you're advocating for the Equal Rights Amendment, the more people can really understand the intersectionality, like the Castle Rock case, where this you know this woman, this Latina woman, had a restraining order that was ignored, and she called Castle Rock Police Department and said, "This my restraining order is being ignored." You know, and and they refused to do anything about it, and her three children who were taken by her husband were killed. And she went all the way to the Supreme Court and they said, oh, this, well, you know, police departments have the right to use their own discretion as to whether or not they're going to enforce a restraining order or not. And, you know, that essentially guts the bill. And these are issues of, and, you know, was there, was there a slow walk of working her restraining order because she was a Latina woman? I think that has, that's a question that needs to be answered. So I think that we have to look at, you know, if the you know if Title IX is being and domestic you know violence is, is being and all these all these things and and you know if a, if a if a woman in an urban community has a low income whose kid gets in trouble and she can't afford a lawyer and that starts a you know a school to prison pipeline issue you know poverty how does that you know if inequality contributes to poverty this all becomes extremely intersectional and I think we really need to start. So I would say that's the action, was one of them, is start thinking about ways that this all, because the more you look, the more you see. 
the foundational constitutional question, so many things are impacted. And we really need to know that in our own minds so we're prepared to talk about it in every community. Okay. Did you still want to touch on a point from earlier? Okay. Um, actually, I have a couple things I want to point out. When you were talking about education, mm -hmm. education is so important, and we have this huge curve to overcome. You're talking about the documentary, I hope? Absolutely. Yes, okay. Equal means equal. Now, uh -huh. I know it's going to be shown in Regal Cinemas. Um, Tuesday. Yeah. Tuesday, okay. Yeah. Um, it's also going to be shown in Cumberland, Maryland, and Campbell is coming from um, Los Angeles for yes. that one. And Maryland now is one of the organizations that's co-sponsoring this. And I think one of the cool, this is one of the greatest tools. I have shown it five times in my area, Washington County. I live in Hagerstown, so you want to talk about a red area, come on out. Mm. Um, but one of the nice things, if you look on the back of this, it talks about all the different issues that Campbell addresses in the film, and it shows the intersectionality of all the different issues. Mm -hmm. The other thing I wanted to mention when you were saying out of state, what can we do? I'm from Maryland. Um, Kathy Kalen lives in Ohio. We're both part of ERA Action. I put these cards out there. We talked about visuals. The visual that shows you which states have ratified and which haven't is really helpful. But she was helping on uh, Twitter during mm -hmm. the Virginia campaign. Absolutely. Kathy and I worked for years. Kathy came to Virginia five years ago for a rally we had. I was, I was standing outside the, the uh, state house, well, the building, the Pocahontas building, when yes. you were in lobbying right. during that session, and I'm from Maryland, so we can all be a part of it by just getting involved. We had people come in from out of state for our big Senate thing. It was, there were, we were, people came from all over. My yep. last point is I'm going to say I'm from Rochester, New York, which is where Susan B. Anthony yes. was born and raised, and um, I don't know if she was born there, but she was raised there. Um, anyway, uh, She's always been an, someone I look up to as my icon um, because this woman in the 1800s in Rochester, New York, now we're in the snow belt up there, and she went out in a horse and buggy all by herself and went from town to town organizing women in 1865, you know, with huge amounts of, I mean, how she ever did that and kept going. She was made fun of in the newspapers. People threw things at her. I mean, the woman just was unbelievable. Mm -hmm. But I do want to say that even before this whole thing with the 14th Amendment, all that stuff came up, I mean, a lot of the women who worked um, on suffrage also did work in the abolitionist movement originally. Was, wasn't Anthony a Quaker? Yes, she was. Yes. Mm -hmm. But what I was going to say about that is I've, I've read, yeah, I've read a lot of the history of this, the biographies, et cetera. And when they were going to do the 14th Amendment, you know, they worked, I mean, Frederick Douglass was at the Seneca Falls Convention, African-American man. They talked with him and his compatriots, and you've got to include women. You've got to include and they felt so betrayed by the fact that women were not included in the 14th Amendment that I think that added into to that chasm. <laughs> and black women got caught between both battles. Yes, yes. Exactly. So I just wanted to add in that bit of history that 
it didn't just all start at this particular point. No, all it women were in the 14th. Like they pulled it out. They pulled time. women out of the 14th because they had to. They weren't going to pass it. You watch the movie Lincoln, they talk about it in the movie. The Republican Party was not going to pass. They were not going to pass. The, I thought it was the 15th since that's the one that says male. That's the one who gave them the vote. Right. And they were about getting the vote. And the uh, Republicans said, no, if we put nope. women in there. And that's when the nope. women's movement, well, the feminist Exactly. Nope. No. No. There. It. There's a. There's a history of white male suppression, that really goes all the way back to Abigail Adams. Yeah. Um. So we're at time right now, but we have three this people. Who, yeah. We've hand. had three people who've been raising their hands. Can they um, ask their questions? Yeah, just ask your question. Yeah, so we got one here, one here, and one here. And then that's going to be the cutoff for questions, sorry, just because we're at time. Okay. So you were first. Thanks. Hi, I'm Jennifer Guzman-Hosey. Um, you actually might have seen me in the Washington Post last week because in the Maryland Democratic Party, I worked as the state chair. I thought you looked familiar. Initiated, um, I've been looking at you Gender old. equality at the ballot within the Democratic Party. Um, but that's not actually what my question or rather comment is. I'm glad there's a tremendous focus of the discussion has been about inclusivity. There's one group uh, that hasn't been mentioned um, a lot, and it's an emerging group, really. It's um, people who are um, mixed race, really. And it's um, there are some unique challenges uh, with that. And I think that it should be, I, you know, I'm so glad that you mentioned um, the discussions in Annapolis about um, maternal deaths within the first year and how uh, not only is it a women's issue, but women of color are not being asked. I mean, one example of how um, mixed race people then kind of, but especially women, are not being um, representatives. For example, my my uh, my story with uh, health. I I was actually very sick for a number of years. And it turns out after like 10 years, I need as much vitamin D after breaking bones year after year after having immune system problems, I need as much vitamin D as a person of color, even though I don't look that way. And I got started getting better, and it was that simple. There's actually almost no medical research on mixed race people. If you're talking about maternal deaths, there should be people of the African-American community there, the people of the Latino community there, uh, the LGBT community there, who face other unique challenges and discrimination, uh, from doctors and otherwise, but also mixed race people, because there are unique issues. And so I'm thriving, I'm doing better, I'm doing very well, but there are differences and it's something that needs to be brought to the table. So just, um, it's mixed race. Uh, people are the fastest growing demographic in the country. In fact, 42% of mixed race people are, like me, uh, one white and one Latino. And, um, and so there's just a whole bunch of new stories. And mixed race people don't have as many people in the older generation to turn to as much because, because of miscegenation laws, there weren't as many people who are mixed race who are older. And so there's a lot of new discussions that need to happen. 
And mixed race people are probably not the only marginalized group that also need to come to the table. I'm sure that there are maybe others here that that need to be discussed and that should be brought in, but that is a perspective that I think should be at the table and if there's any other group that also needs representation, I certainly want to work with them too. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> unless any of our you panelists want to touch on that. Um, go to Sarah for your question. I just had a question about, are, are the activis activists that are currently out there focused on specific states that haven't ratified because some are closer? Yes. Yeah. And which are those states? Uh, Virginia, Illinois, and Arizona are right now the key three states. But Georgia has also has a bill in. We're focused on the states that have bills. Georgia has a bill, Arizona has a bill, Illinois has a bill, Virginia had a bill, we're done for the year, we don't go back till January. We will have a bill. Um, we've already got sponsors. Um, Florida. And Florida. And, and North Florida Carolina. has. North Carolina. And North Carolina. North Carolina. Um, you know, there, but the, the state that's likely to pop next, we're looking to Illinois. We have a press release ready to go when Illinois ratifies. We're ready to rock and roll. Are they still in session? They are. They have a primary on Tuesday. They're not doing anything until after the primary, and then they're reconvening in April. So April is really it's go time for Illinois. I so in the Senate, they had someone who's holding the bill. He's head of the committee, and he has to die or something before. <laughs> 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 no, they, they're they're vote counting. They they do something in Illinois that I personally wouldn't do. They won't take it to the floor until they know they have the votes. I think the momentum is there when they go to the floor and have a recorded vote. Because that's what we did in Virginia, and it took a couple of years, and then we started getting, every year it was like, oh, what are we going to do? And a few maybes, when they have to vote, they vote yes. So I personally, but then again, I'm not in Illinois, and they won't put it, they, they want the votes in hand before they go. And they've pulled the bill a few times because of maybes. But again, that's where you have to respect the state you're in. In Virginia, that would be a loss of momentum for us to not push and push and push. We realize it's a long game in Virginia, and that's what we're doing. Um, but you know that's um, Illinois has got it. But there, but Illinois is likely to be the next state, and Arizona is actually in better shape than I would have thought. So, but yes, and again, Florida, Georgia, and North Carolina have bills. But on the on the continuum of who's likely to be the most right. successful, they're 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 not they're not up where Arizona and Illinois I are. I do want to mention that in Georgia, that is the only group that I know that is predominantly African. Oh yeah, the entire coalition there are, are African American women. On the bill. Oh yeah, they're amazing. Georgia. And they're the advocates, the entire advocacy team, where I'm on their I'm on their weekly call. Right. Those women are powerful. Yes, they are powerful. And I don't mean to that question of the idea of reaching out um, cross borders and such, but is there an ethical concern? No. 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 It's just you could annoy them. <laughs> like that's no, the thing. No, you need to understand. You need to understand this. And I tell that you need to understand. Let's talk about this for a minute. You know. Equal rights <laughs> amendment. Would that annoy you? Your state has been ratified forever. <laughs> you're waiting. You're like the kid sitting in at detention because the kid in the back of the class got everybody stuck in. Your wagon is hitched to my state. My state is holding up your constitutional equality. And what I tell the people in my Virginia legislature, you know, you're some, you're some delegate from some podunk rural farm community in Virginia. This is the single most important bill that you will ever vote on that will touch more lives than anything. There were 172 million Americans, and that's just its women, because the Equal Rights Amendment affects men, and it affects everybody. 
So, but just 172 million American women are waiting for the Constitution to, because let's, let's face it, while the Equal Rights Amendment helps everyone, the reason it's not there was to exclude women. So just, in, just the, the optic of women finally being included is 172 million women are waiting for you, the delegate in some rural community in Virginia, to vote for it. This is the single most important thing you'll ever be able to put your name on. So you have every right to demand it because it's all, it affects you. This is not a state-only issue. This is constitutional equality, and Virginia is dragging its behind, and it's affecting you. And Hawaii, who ratified 42 minutes after it passed, is like they're, they're stuck waiting for Virginia to get off its behind. So I am, I am of the opinion that this is every American citizen has a right to plague the states who are holding up everybody. So no, it's not. I think it's I think it's unethical to expect you to sit back and be victimized by this stall. Do you have to go? Go ahead. No, I'm trying to get to the last. Okay, question. we have one. Okay, go ahead. We're over time. <laughs> okay, uh, it's gonna be from Linda here, and then we're gonna hey, let our panel. Uh, I go. have a, a comment and a question. And when you're talking about intersectionality, it amazes me that nobody mentioned Eleanor Roosevelt, who, who had press conferences with female reporters only, who got Marian Anderson and amplified her voice, who resigned from the DAR. Amazing, amazing that we have totally, been, who was called the woman of the world for decades. She was also against the Equal Rights Amendment. Again, again, it's complicated. It's complicated. Because of her labor. Because she was a woman of her time. Again, I agree. In a lot of ways. I agree. So, uh, but uh, my question is, uh, we're down to a two-state strategy. I have at least one friend who says, the legislative history for the two-state strategy says that lesbians would not be included. Wrong. Now, how binding, how binding is legislative history? I don't think it is when you look at the plain meaning of what, what the On what grounds would they say that, though? No, it's not. It's equality of rights under the law should not be denied or abridged. Hold on. Let me just... Let me just attach it to, because I, I work with a lot of lawyers, so I actually, you know, that is true. In some ways, people say that's true. So basically what happens is before the vote, they have the hearings. The hearings, you give the testimony, and the testimony is therefore what is supposed, is, you know, after it's voted on, is therefore supposed to be discussing what this bill means. And mm -hmm. there was some testimony in the 70s that where the women's rights, again, being callously practical, whether or not they wanted to say it, said, no, this doesn't include LGBT rights. Again, do I believe that they all felt that that was right? No. But do I think they were doing it to get it passed? Yes. Well, that's which, an opinion. Which, but it's in the legislative history. And it's written down. I do know some lawyers, though, who say, well, like, come on, no one actually goes through it. But, I mean, it is there. And you can't change it. But I do know some, it depends on the lawyer. Some people think that it's it's really not that influential, mm -hmm. and some people it do. It says mm -hmm. women. I think it says, says it doesn't women. apply to abortion. It's on account of sex. Yeah. On account of sex. And that's, sex. Yeah. everybody has sex. Right. Even it, it, it's gender is fluid, but, you know. Yeah. yeah. But to your point. Lavender medicine now 
international organization for women. But you're also looking at the fact that when you talk about the legislative history, you know, the legislative history has also been misrepresented as well. Like they talk about whether or not the ratification deadline is a barrier. Well, the, they didn't vote on the ratification deadline. That was added to the preamble after what they voted on in Congress. So a lot of what we've been talking about for 50 years is actually inaccurate. And one of the things that Nevada did was when Nevada ratified, a lot of lawyers around the country popped up and said, ooh, Nevada ratified, how does this change things? And they started looking at it and they started realizing that, you know, there's an article called Article 5, of, you know, the, the Article 5 of the Constitution, this was put up in Chicago School of Law. The Article 5 of the Constitution, you know, doesn't mention ratification deadlines. Their position is that ratification deadlines are themselves unconstitutional. Then you've got William and Mary's uh, piece, why the Equal Rights Amendment remains legally viable and presentable before the courts. The point of the matter is, this is all belongs in the court. And one of the things that they have decided after Nevada is that the legislative history, you know, it is, A, it's a state's rights issue. Uh, Virginia voted on the poll tax, the 24th Amendment, that had a ratification deadline imposed on it. And again, they've only had like two or three ever that had a ratification, and they've only put them on things that was, they were trying to put a poison pill and to socially divide it. The poll tax was one of them. Virginia voted on the poll tax seven years after the ratification deadline was imposed, which shows us a state precedent fighting states' rights at the time. So that's a precedent. The bottom line is the worst thing you can say about the Equal Rights Amendment is that it's debatable. And, the, the and other, that belongs in the court, not in the General so Assembly. The, the other part, too, is though, that there is another piece of federal legislation that I know lawyers that, well believe is very necessary to get this SJRS 5 and HJRS 53 passed for the court to be likely to rule in the favor of it. And in that, you also have an opportunity to create more legislative uh, precedents. There will have to be hearings for that bill, too. You know. If you know you are equality of rights should not be denied between the United States or any other state on account of sex, that's an all to me. That's an all to me. And I think also as we're talking about the lens of time, I think in today's, even as even as conservative as the current court is, I think they would say all is all. And that's part of one of the reasons that they and that's one of the reasons, that's one of that's the reason why Illinois did not ratify in the 70s was because Illinois didn't have a problem with the, with with you know the same kind of like well ladies have to be ladies like they had in Virginia they had this idea they recognized and at the time and if you do this if you do the reading they had this concern that it would convey rights to homosexuals which was what the, the name was at the time they would say oh, it would convey rights to homosexuals and they 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 were afraid to vote on it because of that so there was the idea even in the set, in, that's what stopped Illinois, a northern state, is they were afraid that it would convey. Now that's a plus. So again, the lens of time is a very interesting thing. As we look, you know, we have to, we have the, we have the, the luxury and the responsibility to look through the lens of time and say, how do we, how do we remediate those issues? Because we can go all the way back to Thomas Jefferson and, 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 and really just kind of look at the lens of times. So one of the most persuasive arguments that I had in Virginia, and again, you gotta work the room you're in. Uh, Virginia voted on the Bill of Rights, which was the first 10 amendments of the Constitution on December 15, 1791 in the Virginia General Assembly. One, one of my points to them was, do you recognize 
that the, the state of Virginia can bring constitutional gender equality into the Constitution and complete the aspirational goal of the Bill of Rights. You see, you see the symbolism there? The idea of being able to close that circle of what they started and what they thought was inclusive at the time, which we now know is not inclusive, but Virginia, you can, you can take back what, was your, what you started and finish it and complete it and do it right. The, the aspirational goal of the Bill of Rights. When they said all, we now can mean all. And once we do that, I don't think any of your concerns are going to are going to stand. They're all going to wash away. That's just. I mean, but again, that's debatable, and it belongs. I believe it belongs in the court. Belongs in the court. So on that note, since we are about 15 minutes over time, we're going to wrap up. Thank you so much to Bettina, Andrea, Eileen, and Janelle for being on our panel. Thank you all so much for coming. Um, just a reminder, we do have some materials up here if you'd like to grab some further reading and um, FAQ sheets. Come on up and we'll give those to you. Thank you all so much again.